one of the great things about doing this job, but, um, but it's also a slightly terrifying thing, is you have an instinct about something and then you put it out into the world and then the reaction to it can sometimes be surprising. And that's exciting, but I just like, when, when, when words like bleak and depressing and why would I want to watch that ever again, that, you know, started, started coming at us, um, I, I was surprised by it because for, for us, it was just really about trying to capture some sense of, if you're gonna do this very genre idea and try to dress it up in a very non-genre presentation. I mean, I, th I think that, like, you know, when you just say, you know, 140 million people sort of abruptly disappear, like, how are you going to show that? How are you going to express that? Um, like, for me, it was really just all about, even though the, uh, the book starts three years later, as does the show, but I was like, how are these people feeling? Like, you know, when, when it, just this idea that it could happen again at any time, I know, like, I, I live in Los Angeles, so I know how I feel right after an earthquake. So this idea of, like, you just get, you just kind of get, Every time you start to kind of feel good about something, you're like, oh, this food is really good. And then something's just kind of bothering you. And you're like, what is it? Oh, right. There was just this earthquake. And I, and I kind of feel like something that happened on that scale, not just physically like, oh, the people that I love could disappear at any moment, which, by the way, is just a fear that we all have. That's not a grief. That's not a grief fear. It's like, you know, you basically, you know, you find someone that you love and you propose to them and, you know, and you have family that you care about. But the idea for any of us who have, who have suffered loss the idea that in a second they could be gone. Um, once it happens, it's jarring because it does. it's not just like, oh, I'm grieving my dad because he's dead. That's sad. But the other thing that happens is you're sort of like, how do I reevaluate everybody else that I know because they could be gone too? And so how does this look and how does this feel? And how are people who are experiencing this all the time behaving? They'd be going kind of a little bit crazy because normally we're looking around for answers. You know, you look, you know, like, what is the Pope going to come out on his balcony and basically say, don't worry, this is what the departure was, and allow me to contextualize it for you, and all you have to do is come to church every day, and you're going to feel better, then the Pope is basically, he's gone, you know? So, so I, I really like that idea of a world where kind of everybody was looking for answers, and I live in a world that is predominantly, you know, we're, we're people of science, you know, we, we bend towards atheism, but, it, it, but we're all afraid to say that we believe in God, and we describe ourselves as like, well, I'm kind of spiritual, like, <laughs> you know, I kind of believe that, like, everybody's connected, and it's like, you're talking about the force. Just say... <laughs> Just say you believe in the force. Like, you know, but we, we, we kind of don't know how to qualify it. And it was like, so th the idea that people were afraid, that they were pushing away the people that they cared about most because they were afraid of losing them. So that's what we tried to put on the page. And then if someone had just said to me at any time in the process, do you, you know, do you think anyone's going to want to watch this? You know, and when I saw this poster, I was like, yes, it's that. But then I don't understand, like, when you drive by that poster, you're like, God, like, I'd much rather watch, like, Tyrion dealing with dragons, like. podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God.
you know, I, I, I want you to articulate the specificity, but to sort of open the door for you here, like I'm excited. I'm, I'm nervous. Uh, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm hopeful um, adjacent to the films. And you articulated this at the end of infinity war. We're, we're stepping into a TV guidepost that, yeah. that kind of spines uh, the whole thing we're doing here. Why don't you, if it's all right, just take a minute and just, what are, what are we doing? What is the goal? If yeah. for some reason someone didn't listen to infinity war, <laughs> right, right, that, right. Was a, that was a lot of, that was a fun episode, even though it ends in a sad place. What it are we was, doing? It was, they should go. Yeah. But they should go listen to it. So we are spending, uh, the next, uh, several weeks, uh, with little breaks in between to tag back in on, 2020, 2020, uh, we're going to be covering the HBO series, The Leftovers. And um, the biggest intention behind doing that was with the global moment that we're in and with so much consideration around weighty moments of of tragedy and trauma and and this profound pause as has has come into play in several aspects of the conversation, just that word, um, we wanted to take a moment and just look at grief and loss and really uh i think it is more than that just the tragedy of occurrences where your world is upended and turned upside down and you don't really know exactly if or when things will be okay uh which is a large part about why we started with infinity war because uh it is very easy in light of uh, other things that took place in MCU, and now one year later we had a different film to kind of close the loop on it. But when Infinity War came out, that was all you you had was just the ending, and the ending was with half of them gone, and uh, and not knowing exactly how things were going to be okay. And the leftovers felt like a really appropriate sort of similar examination where the premise of the show, the leftovers is that 2% of the population have just vanished. Um, the global, the global population. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, It is, it is a rapture like event, uh, devastating in its implications, but only 2% of the population. So there are places that were, uh, not entirely affected by it or not directly affected by it, but definitely, uh, just a, titanic occurrence um and i feel like right now we are going through with the impact of covid19 the the reactions in various places from different people to that event um the leftovers felt like a particularly uh prescient show to carry us through this and in that spirit so that i can wind this down we're also doing this seasonally in phases so season one will have sort of a different set of films then season two and season three. So we are launching into that cycle of four films and a conversation about season one of The Leftovers. That is what you're in for, ladies and gentlemen, for the next four or five weeks. And my my uh, 2% <laughs> uh, note there is, and, and it's especially poignant to me, having watched episodes now one through four of season one, What the thing I love about that show and why it felt important and and worth our time is the show is not interested ultimately in what really happened right and where are these people right the show is interested in how now do you live mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 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 in some ways the f- question is how can you yeah right that, you know that Certainly. that presents itself but but more than that as an overarching sort of meditation, it's in the face of tragedy, both global and intimate. 
how do you how do you press forward? How do you move forward? Right. Um, and that felt really uh, because of the nature of this show, particularly um, being what it is, that felt real like a worthwhile exercise. Yeah, uh, certainly. For us certainly on the show. Um, right. Are, are you ready? I don't know if I am. <clears throat> Doing this on a video setting is a lot different than knowing that it's only in audio format, but nonetheless, we begin now our first TV guideposts of 2020, the eerily prescient uh, HBO series based on the Tom Parada novel adapted uh, and, and show ran by our mutual favorite Damon Lindelof, The Leftovers, starring Justin Thoreau and a bevy of other folks whose names are not in front of me currently. Today, on this episode, we will be discussing episodes one and two of season one of The Leftovers, and now, to Mapleton. That was, that was beautiful. Thank you. That was you. wonderful. That was wonderful. <sighs> Thank you, Reed. It really puts me right there, right there with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reed, we're talking about The Leftovers. I know, isn't like, that crazy? You, it, it feels like it's like the most right and the weirdest thing to yes. be done yeah. doing right now Well, and, for you and I. Oh, absolutely. And I think the, still the shorthand for us is, yeah, we're, we're a podcast about you know, faith and life and horror films, but really that, that mantra has changed particularly the last year or so to just examining what scares us in order to find what saves us. And that, that is an exclusive to the horror genre. I said that, you know, a bit in the conversation about infinity war, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's broader. Well, and so, so dialing in on the leftovers, you know, I have a memory. You can correct this if it needs to be done because my memory is what it is. Um, but I feel like, am I wrong? Did I push you to watch, to watch the show? Not wrong is that at all. Correct? You, yeah. Okay. You're, okay. you're responsible for it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's all I was gearing up for. I, I just figure, love it. Yeah. It's this, this um, is really your fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to get to a thing if I remember to say it because it's not my notes for something that you're responsible for when we get to the movie. Um, um, in my life. Um, but, you know, perhaps I'll get to it in time. Perhaps I won't when we finally reach the culminating Fear of God episode on Leftover Season 1. But Leftover Season 1 caught me in a real particular moment in life that kind of felt both needing to grieve and have the catharsis this show provides, uh, but also just as you and I, you know, a listener of two episodes knows we're massive Lindelof fans. And mm -hmm. so I kind of followed him to this show, having no idea what I was in for. Um, and I have not read the book. I know you have. Right. Um, but yes, if, if you're curious, it is based on a book, but only season one of the show is based on the book. Uh, from there, um, they sort of pivot in wildly different directions with the same, roughly the same characters. Um, but any listener right now or viewer mm -hmm. um, who may have expressed interest in the show before and may have even dabbled in season one, we will even readily acknowledge season one is very heavy. It is. Um, yeah. Almost to an extreme sense. Uh, I reference a number of times through the course of the fear of God's life, the show, um, the podcast, the watch, uh, with Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan as part of the Ringer Network. And they both come from the TV criticism uh, world. And Greenwald specifically bashed season one of The Leftovers 
as too dour mm. and okay. and actually came around rather significantly in the subsequent seasons to the point of where he became an ardent cheerleader of it fascinating so so just know listener if you're like oh my god that, I, I watched one or two of those and that's awful right. it is yes. it is yeah and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we can, as we move through the show, move through the series, discuss the arcs and pivots and maybe pull some, some Lindelof quotes later on. But, you know, season one, just to prep you, it is heavy. Um, Very much so. But with, with all of that sort of those building blocks out of the way, um, I know you and I have both only seen it through the one time. I feel like I rewatched episode one once, but that's it. Mm. Uh, the, of my refreshers, um, you referenced a minute ago. Two percent of the world's population has been, you know, kind of Thanosed. Uh, you can almost envision uh, the Infinity War happens, and the series, the leftovers, yeah. is what happens between it right. and Endgame. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit. It's people wrestling with this. Just all of a sudden, uh, they're gone. The snap. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right, right. Um. I don't totally know the inroads into this other than just start picking apart well, components. Yeah. Well, and, um, and for listeners who please. may not have caught up uh, with our formatting of TV guideposts, we're going to spend the next few episodes for maybe 10 to 15 minutes talking about a pair of episodes in more cursory fashion, maybe glancing, glancing off of some deeper waters, but for the most part, just talking about the mechanics of what happens in the episodes. And then this little mini series will culminate in a fuller, richer thematic discussion about season one of The Leftovers. So just we're about to dive into one and two episodes, one and two, just uh, what happens and what we liked about it and what it made us think. So that was a very meta moment because it was also rewarding me off from getting too deep here. So That's I appreciate, appreciate no it. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've got your primary characters. You've got Kevin Garvey, his daughter, Jill. Uh, but actually, some of these relationships aren't fully clear at the outset. We just have seen it. So we know that uh, his I guess we can spoil some of these things. But Tommy, who is his son, but not his biological son, right. um, his estranged wife, Lori, who is part of this guilty remnant. Uh, one of the things that will be returned to over and over as we discuss the show is I remember specifically either listening to or reading uh, uh, an interview with Lindelof around the time the series was releasing of how with a global event like this, what that does to pivot the axis of religion on the whole, mm. um, you know, like new religions themselves would develop based around a phenomenon. Right. So right. Kind of inexplicable. And the guilty remnant we're introduced to is this, uh, ascetic, I think would be an appropriate word. Mm. Um, is cult a right word? I mean, I guess, you know, they, yeah, it applies. No, it kind applies. Of all the earmarks yeah. of, mm-hmm. of recontextualizing an entire lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, but this guilty remnant is a thing that has developed this group of people that has developed. They smoke incessantly. They wear white completely, uh, and they, uh, don't speak. Right. Um, and his estranged wife, Lori has become enmeshed in this cult. Uh, I will throw out one more sort of note here and then let you take over wherever you want for episode one. Um, I adore, and Dowd, she's <laughs> amazing. And just seeing her show up in this episode, I was like, oh my God, yeah. I love her so much. I mean, like she does. So to me, she's kind of like a current era, Kathy Bates in terms of just that. I think that's a great comparison style. Um, oh, absolutely. Anyway, I, I love, I love and Dowd. Yeah, I know. I, I think that's a great comparison. And I think that the, the difficulty I have is how frequently she plays 
terrible people. Sure. <laughs> I think that's yeah. because she yeah, is yeah, yeah. such a remarkable actor and such a powerful presence whenever she's in a scene. It is just she always plays people in Handmaid's Tale, in a film called Compliance, in Hereditary. Oh. Like she always plays someone that is just awful. To the, she's so good at it. She's great at it. It's it's kind of yeah. alarming. I'm sure she's probably a very sweet person because oh, sure. most of the time people who play those kind of parts are just uncommonly kind in real life. Right, right, um, right. But yeah, she's uh, yeah, she is a, a powerhouse performer. Um, the performers in general are are good in this. I do feel like um, the first season kind of takes a little bit to get underway um, to kind of find its footing. I will say the opening sequence that. Of of the that's harrowing. Yes, that's October fourteenth. So it is the exact terrible. word I wrote down. I said it's the most harrowing and dreadful things ever. One of. I mean, it's just all the chaos, the disappearances. It's uh, it, it, it's really well that kicks the door down. There's so much groundwork I want to lay here, but but uh, that scene particularly. But what it made me think of immediately was um, if you have a, a, a digital music service, Apple Music, Spotify, what have you, look up the scores, the Max Richter oh, scores yes. that accompany yes. this show. They're, they are transcendent. They really I mean, are. It is yeah, they really are. ethereal and beautiful. But but specifically, the first time I think they're deployed in this episode is the dis- disappearance of Sam. It's true. Yes. The, the episode opens with the sudden disappearance or the sudden departure. And it's this woman on the phone in her car had just put her squalling sort of infant in the back seat it stops crying off camera and the camera pulls out and it's gone and it's yeah. uh, that's how you start the show oh, so yeah. yeah it's yeah it starts at, a, at at that spot um you do have nora and matt yeah uh, mm-hmm. siblings who you don't know out of the gate I, I wasn't even thinking about this you do know i know you know this but the connection between the leftovers and infinity war right other than just the events of the show oh that um, that nora is uh or that carrie coon is that her carrie coon, yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, that she yeah. is gosh what is that character's name though i always forget that character that name. character is it's funny i totally wrote it down for our infinity war and so there's call obsidian there's corvus glaive there is what is that um proxima midnight proxima is the name midnight. of her character okay. that's some <laughs> wow that's great yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes it did indeed <laughs> Um, uh, wrong thing. Leftovers. Here we go. Um, I'll, I'll throw two notes on, um, episode one and then we can move on to two as I'm sure, yeah. ready to, yeah. um, Nora's speech at Heroes Day mm. is there are two moments I teared up in this rewatch. It was there that culminates. She tells these adjacent stories of, uh, terrible sickness that her whole family endured yeah. as well as a day at the beach that was lovely. And she is noteworthy in this town. This character is noteworthy in this town because her husband and both her children, her whole family departed. Yeah. Um, but she ends this speech by saying, I'm not greedy. I'm not asking for that perfect day at the beach. Just give me that horrible Saturday, all four of us sick and miserable, but alive and together. Yeah. 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 No kidding. No kidding. And such a moment like that, particularly with echoes of, you know, what's transpiring among us right now, the ways that you can wish for, you know, the most mundane things. And uh, again, we're not diving into deep waters in these portions, though it may come up in in a little bit with our primary film. Um, The only other big note that I took away from first episode 
was the sequence at the end where the gentleman whose name I have forgotten. I don't think they ever give him one. Do they not? Okay. Um, uh, when the dogs kill the deer, which is a right. t- terrible moment in and of itself. But then the man, you know, culminating in the they're not our dogs line, which yeah. really is haunting just as a concept. Uh, they're not our dogs. Not anymore. Um, so, yeah, that uh, that was my biggest takeaway from from ironically from episode one, which is largely scene setting. Uh, the opening sequence and the closing sequence are the the most memorable elements to it for me. Um, you ready to dive into episode two? You good? Sure. So, good Lord, the first time in episode two when you see the title sequence, I love oh, yeah. the title really? sequence with the music and with this... Well, what's so funny about you saying that is knowing where the series goes with its titles. Yes. I so love that so much that this this was yeah. like, oh, yeah. Oh, that's it's, right. It's they used not, to do this thing. Let the mystery be. Yes. Yeah. Let the mystery be is a better choice, particularly yes. with what the show's trying to say. But I do love this season one sure. opening title sequence. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick the door down on something right away because it's probably going to come up multiple times as we move through season one. I <laughs> hate... And I know that's a strong word, but I feel for, I've watched four episodes, you've watched four episodes now, uh, and, and this is our second time through it, but re-watching them, I hate the Holy Wayne plotline. Like, it's, I, it's- I despise it. I didn't like it in the novel. I don't like it in the series. I think everybody acted- It did give us Buddy Garrity back, for at least a moment. That is true. I did like seeing old Buddy Garrity. <laughs> Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Um, So- I uh but no like I think the performers are doing what they can with the material. I just hate the plot line. Like I'm not I'm not against like any any individual or what they're trying to do. It's just ugh, it's just awful every time I well, come it comes up. There are two this episode presents two rich themes that that and Wayne is part of one of those threads. I agree with you. I mean it's not a chore, but it's definitely the least interesting thread. And the show, if it doesn't at the outset, knows that and learns that uh, right. for its future. But um, the two main sort of philosophy puzzle pieces that you get handed here that become keystone ideologies of the show, I'll tell the one, well, what does not matter? So the guilty remnant, yeah, this mm-hmm. cult. <sighs> In a new way, and maybe I just didn't remember it the first time, I love uh, Laurie and Meg at the tree initially. Sure. When And another thing I failed to mention with the Gulsey Remnant is because they don't speak, they write everything down. Yes. Meg Abbott, who is played by Liv Tyler um, of The Strangers um, and various other things. you know, mm. But <laughs> for our purposes, The Strangers um, is accusing... Is, is being put through this rite of passage to be part of the guilty remnant. And yes. she references them as a cult and Laurie Kevin's estranged wife writes, not a cult. And I'm paraphrasing some of this. Meg says, I'm not doing this. Mm. Laurie says, why? She says, I don't want to. Laurie says, why? Meg says, it's all so stupid. Okay. And Laurie says, okay. Mm. And that is the guilty remnant ideology. Yeah. On a certain level, sure, it's all stupid. Yeah, you know these attachments, the things we're holding on to. This recurring theme of remember 
is is it's really interesting and i hope we you and i get to this as i trust we probably will the guilty remnant are sort of fascinating it's one scene to the next it's kind of hard for me to their intention is elusive like their their Mm -hmm. their their meaning their ideology is a bit elusive but at the same time when it is clear to me there are moments where i'm like i kind of totally get what they're doing like it's really interesting yeah and and i mean take taking a moment the amount because you're you're we're comparing cults here we have i just railed against the holy wayne stuff the guilty remnant which is you know cultish in its dynamic is uh, legions more interesting to me uh sure. i mean they, they and in the novel the same way that just this idea of we refuse to be normal and i don't i like you don't have like a defined i don't think the show ever like lays out a mission statement for the guilty remnant but the what their ultimate aim is does feel a bit more elusive but i i do find their approach compelling as awful as some of the things are that they eventually do um yeah well, can I throw at you? Sure. I do think they posit. I'm simply saying sometimes one moment to the next, it's hard for me to keep this in view. In the first episode, uh, uh, there are placards and, and sort of imagery throughout the Guilty Remnants oh, yep. cult house that says, we are living reminders. Mm-hmm. And then reference to the smoking. We don't smoke for enjoyment, but to proclaim our faith. And I think, uh, largely, I, th- I think, the guilty remnant is saying we remember in other words and this is where the guilty remnant become interesting talking points for the cultural moment we're in they are here to say you guys are trying to move on there's nothing to move on into yes it is yeah. also mm-hmm. stupid mm-hmm. it's stupid we remember mm-hmm. and so smoking killing ourselves is our religion yes right right, right. so there, so there is that yes there's that cult aspect the other cult aspect that i think or rather the other ideology ideological aspect and then i can be done um that i think is going to echo through for ourselves for the show um i'm with you little though i like wayne there's an interesting juxtaposition of scenes late in this episode wayne says to tom when he's offering his holy hug yeah right right he says you don't have to feel like this anymore and then minutes later meg to Lori says I don't want to feel this way. Ah, interesting. Yeah. And it's just this Mm -hmm. interesting sort of wrestling with our attachments and, you know, the, the, the things we love and why we love them, the things we hate and why we hate them. I don't know. It's just a really interesting conversation. Those two ideologies are having. I can appreciate that. I can. Uh, My last note, uh, as obvious as it is, I do love the bagel metaphor, uh, but skip, but skipping right past that. Um, I wanted to just mention because this is his first appearance uh, that I I find Scott Glenn's character he's he's, he's wonderful so as a character and this is my favorite performance I've ever seen Scott Glenn give he's I mean he's excellent not as stick in Daredevil come on <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I do like him in Daredevil um, <laughs> but uh, no I mean yeah he's he's really remarkable in this. And I really, uh, he goes to some fascinating places as the show progresses. And so I, I just wanted to give him a shout out since this was his first appearance was in episode two, but that's uh, that's all the notes I have on it thus far. <clears throat> and with that, ladies and gentlemen of Mapleton, we end our hero's day anniversary celebration of those who have departed. Join us next week 
for episodes three and four of season one of The Leftovers, where we meet in more full version the one and only Matt Jamison, perhaps our favorite character of the whole show, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll see you next time on TV Guide. <laughs> oh, oh man, it's so weird to do there's that. There's a lot video. happening right now, Reed. It's so weird. Happening. It's so weird. It's like in life, it's, in art, it's, in us. Oh, it's true. Yeah. It's true. So, you know, Lego Masters, incredibly fun show. Speaking of fun shows, um, <laughs> let's let's go back to Mapleton and join up with the Garvey clan and extended cast uh, for the Damon Lindelof spearheaded Tom Parada novel the leftovers uh of hbo mm. specifically we are looking at for this tv guide posts um we are covering the leftover season one right now this is episodes three and four yes um numbers number three two boats and a helicopter and number four bj and the ac uh we, we we probably will spend the bulk of our time at number three here number three or episode three rather is the matt jameson episode it, it is what yes. i call the lock episode um it's the third of the series it features the man of faith of the show um and in a really profound and devastating sort of sequence of events um you know this episode is the kind one that you you gotta think damon just loves but two sure loves to execute on and really elevates like one and two are good and and elements of them are fantastic sure this one and I, I love that we just covered 28 days later, you know, six weeks ago and, and sure, referred yeah. to Matt Jameson over and over. And here we are formally yep. getting to know him. And he's, he's a terrible guy. <laughs> <laughs> I love the man, but goodness gracious. So, yeah. so yeah, episode three, two boats in a helicopter is the Matt centric, uh, his attempt to keep his church, uh, effectively is, yeah. is, is yeah. the arc of the episode. You know, you, you, I think we both had only seen the series and it's in uh total once, right? So this Correct. is, yes, this is my a, second a time reviewing for you. What, what's, what stood out for you in this episode that, that either you may have not recalled or were excited to revisit. So what's funny is I did not remember this episode going where it did until the moment that he goes in and talks to the uh, bank, the the teller mm-hmm. at the bank, mm-hmm. and I realized, like, oh, this is that episode because man, the last like fifteen minutes of this episode is is absolutely galvanizing. Um, but there wasn't a lot. I don't have a strong memory of season one. Like most of the things we've been experiencing, I I'm remembering them like kind of in real time as they sure. happen, not so much that I went into it with this vast knowledge. I remember much more from season two when we get there than I do of season one or three. So it's going to, it's going to be interesting when we, when we go back through it. Um, Matt Jameson is my favorite character in this show. Um, 
the entire show. I feel like he's the one with the the strongest amount of complexity to his motivations, strongest amount of pathos, strongest amount of frustration. Um, I feel like he's just the most interesting person. Not that the other characters are uninteresting, but he's the one that is kind of the the most compelling both his story his actions what he is and what he's all about and eccleston he's so good oh my gosh he's he's outstanding yeah well, let's go ahead. let's contextualize it this way so we don't want to spend forever on each episode and we've got a movie to get to and a guest by the way which i'll let yes, you um indeed. sort of uh, prime us for that but i feel like there's two scenes in this episode that are the the uh, you know, if you were to distill Matt Jamison into two things, it's terrible and beautiful. Uh, yes. And, yes. and I do want to throw out one line that I just loved and is very exemplary of a lot of stuff about this show. It's when he, he gets on the elevator with the clown. Mm. And oh, as the door yes. is closing, yes. he just says, guess you and me are going to the same place. Oh and it's just this great, like, Wonderful. we've already seen the clown at Heroes Day and the pilot, yes, you know, so yes. we know where they're going. But it was just this perfect bit of, of you know, it's kind of scripting and, and sort of choreography. But the, the scenes I want to focus on, and you can add as much or as little as you want here, but the I'll start with the terrible and then we'll go. To okay, the sure, sure. The terrible, but an amazing scene is his encounter with Nora when we learn their relationship and he's asking for money. She's kind of put off. Um, You know, you, you learn that he has been uh, posthumously exposing people who got taken in the sudden departure as, as wretched folks and, and is making this a a sort of cottage hobby for himself. Um, And it's just really sad. And this is where he divulges to Nora, his sister that her, husband of whom the husband and her two kids were all taken in the departure um <laughs> listeners won't know this but my brain is working really hard for the chronology we're oh, operating sure. under yeah. here yeah. Um, right 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 so he he divulges to her that her husband um doug was yes uh yes. cheating on her and that's the punch he leaves with her and what's so kind of catastrophic about that moment is and maybe i'm, I'm thinking about this in real time I can't tell if he's he he's not. I don't even know that he's doing it to harm her. He's actually no. positioning it as I'm not going to expose you to the same sort of whatever that I'm right, doing to these right. other people. I don't know. It's just really like on in a vacuum. If you just watch that scene and try to assess, okay, what is this character like? You're like, well, that's a terrible person. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the the biggest thing is that he truly feels in the context of his efforts that that's a righteous undertaking. Oh, sure. And I think that's crucial for the character being believable is this thing he's doing about sort of confronting things like Heroes Day and confronting things like this is the rapture, you know, that's... Or it's not, right? That's what he's kind of saying. Yeah, he's saying that it's not the rapture because he's saying, you know, these are not good people. These are not people to be lauded. These are not people that we should uh, just herald as the best among us. and. There is a degree of nobility or at least understandability in what he's trying to do to say, like, hey, let's not paint over the the wrongdoings of these individuals. At the same time, the way he's going about it, I love the moment that happens later in the episode where he's like, I think I can see why you're getting punched in the face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The <laughs> casino know? worker. Yes, yeah. yes. 
Um, and uh, and so when he tells Nora, to your point, I don't think there is malice to it. Sure. I think this is yeah. just, you know, hey, I, I haven't told you this, but here's the deal. And, and it's devastating. He says to her, it's the one story I'll never publish. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, what a yeah, it's it is this mix of terrible. But Eccleston has this ability in his facial expressions to land on a look that just captures so much tension in what he's doing. Like I wrote down a few things. So specifically, he conveys so many conflicting emotions. The moment he finds out Emily got better, but then finds out that it was before they prayed for her. Yeah. The moment that he's asked to baptize you know well, that's a, uh, yeah that's what i was gonna say in these two scenes it's like the nora him scene and then the baptism scene like that oh. that i remember a decent amount of the arc of this season i had forgotten that moment and so uh, yeah, you know yeah. you you had learned previous to that scene that the work of matt jameson is to try to keep or at least of this couple episodes is to keep the church uh open and in his sort of ownership and so no one's attending, no one's coming, you know, the, the sudden departure has, has turned us all into a completely different version of religious than we were previous to it. And, um, you, then you have this kind of 20 something, maybe 30 yeah. year old father, new father who walks in and the line is how long does it take to do a baptism? Mm. And to your point, Chris Eccleston's face is just this amazing. I wrote down this amazing blend of joy and knowing like he just, yeah, yeah. So much gets gets sort of translated in that moment. Absolutely. The other big one that I wrote down was just one of my favorite reactions. It's it, from a scripting moment, from a construction of the scene, when he wins the money, when he wins the big jackpot because they've thrown that that uh, flag on it that like she's possibly jinxed him. So the way that his face is sort of real tense and uncertain, mm -hmm. but then breaks out in that big smile. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's yeah, wonderful. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It's so wonderful. Well, it's uh, interesting. I, I want to throw this thematic idea at you and we, we don't, I, I don't really intend it to linger long here because that's not sure. what this is for. But as I was watching it this time and pondering, Matt to me is a fascinating counterpoint to the sudden departure. Um, mm. Like this episode specifically like the sudden departure occurring to people is, is sort of propping up this. What, what if you had no idea that what you loved would be taken away in mm -hmm. say, Nora. Right. right. And then you've got Matt whose story centers on this church. And it's that conceit is what if you know full well that this is mm -hmm. going to be taken? You know what I mean? It's this right. really kind right. of interesting that this episode just sort of lives in like, yeah. What oh, if you absolutely. know this is going to be taken from you? How do you approach that? Right. Um, versus the Noras of of the leftovers universe who don't know it all. Well, and it can't be ignored. Uh I I had mentioned to you earlier. So the the episode is called Two Boats and a Helicopter. And and uh, I know the answer to this, but for listeners sake like do, do you know where that <laughs> title come from like you and your leading questions lackey. Leading that's questions. Your, that's your, you got that that detective's hat on no, yeah, no that's right. um <laughs> i know the the rough reference yes i mean yeah it's, it's been a while so it's a i heard it as a joke uh it's got a little punchline it's a very brief story to tell there's a story about a, a town that is being flooded and there's a preacher who climbs to the roof of, uh, I've heard it sometimes be his house, sometimes be the church, and uh, he's climbing up there to not drown. A man in a rowboat comes by and says, here, get in, preacher, and I'll rescue you. And he says, well, no, the Lord's going to save me. Then a man in a motorboat comes by 
and says, here, preacher, get in quick. And he says, no, 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 the Lord's going to save me. And then a helicopter comes down, lowers a ladder and says, please, quick, click, climb up, you know. And he says, uh, no, 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 the Lord is going to save me. And so then the preacher drowns, dies. And when he gets to heaven, he confronts the Lord and says, like, Lord, why, why did you not save me? And the Lord says to him, sir, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What do you expect me to do? <laughs> right, right. And, yeah. and, and so that in the context of this episode is so much about, like, is the Lord helping? Is, is the Lord opposed to him? And it's, it's fascinating because to win, to go, that whole casino moment is so incredible. It's, it's stunning to me, the way the scene is constructed, the way it narratively pans out. And then you think he's about to get robbed by that jerk in the parking yeah, lot, but yeah, then, yeah. then it pivots into like, oh, I actually he, forgotten that he murders him. Right. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is devastating in its way. And then he gets back. And to have it all be ripped out from under him because of a momentary act of good Samaritanship is, is uh, there's a lot of complexity yeah. to what this, what this, we probably is should have just done a whole fear of God episode on this episode of the left. Yeah. Cause there's, there's have. a lot we at work have. in this. Yes. One. Yeah. Too, uh, too much to really unpack in these brief sort of assessments. But my final note on it uh, is just when he gets to the bank, he's like, it's only 10 minutes. And, he tells him, like, oh, you know, I, I'm, it's only 10 minutes. And the guy's like, that was three days ago. Right. And you realize that he's been in that, that coma for, or that, you know, unconscious for three days. Uh, masterful scripting on the show's part. Uh, and then just a, a really powerfully affecting moment. So, uh, yeah, I love this episode. This is the episode that I really, first time through it, it's hard to get through this first half of the season, this is an episode that will propel you, if anything will, yeah, that will yeah. say like, okay, there's some stuff going on here. It's worth hanging tight to see where the show goes. So uh, let's let's move in however long we want to episode four, BJ and sure. the AC. Um, what did you think the AC stood for? I don't know. This is one, like, I'm talking all high and mighty about how, oh, I caught the two boats in a helicopter reference. I have no idea well, everybody what BJ knows that one, Reed. <laughs> baby jesus is not right, what i would right. imagine but i don't I was, know what i didn't actually look it up i was like AC, what are we talking about here yeah i know listener if you have watched the leftovers and are deeper into the lore than even we are let us know if you know what that means um yeah what AC this is. one features pretty heavily tommy and christine which uh, i referenced a little bit last week is maybe one of the weakest aspects of this whole season um whole show you, you yeah well this christine at least is, is pretty much done with after this season but yeah, yeah um you read the book and you can unpack some of this as it as it happens but do you recall much about the book and how some of this like the things you liked or didn't about the book i read it in proximity to its publication, which would have been more than five or six years ago now at this point, um, I do remember that th- these char- that Tommy and Christine and the Holy Wayne plotline, like that's all there, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's yeah. In both the reading of the book and, as I mentioned last week, in in this iteration of the series, like this this is my we- my biggest ding against it. I almost am antagonistic against the fact that I have to endure this plot line as it's going through this season. I know it'll just be over. Just the whole Holy Wayne stuff? All of it. Yeah, the whole Holy Wayne stuff. Um, I just... I, there I are do germs not. of some interesting stuff there, but, but on but the they, whole, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. all All they do is really make me sick. I mean, but those to, germs but don't do to me But to the good. show's credit, it learns from its mistakes very Agreed. quickly. 
you know. And also in the show's defense, it's in the novel. And the first right, season right, is right. very much a a relatively faithful adaptation of the plot of the novel. So so that much I'm 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 gonna sort of yield to it. But honestly, I have three very brief things I would mention about this episode, and I wrote this episode down as largely skippable. Like I would say you could probably like view a couple of those scenes and then otherwise like this episode was a slog for me especially coming off of yeah, the energy sure. of episode three it's just like oh my gosh this show is like like it just completely well depends. and and listeners will <laughs> you know the things to be ambivalent on in season one only clear the runway for the the soaring sort of aspects of season two and three to come but sure yes um I think you'll get this joke because of the weird way we record our podcast, but the Furtick twins just tripped me out. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> they do, they I, do resemble. Oh, they yes. They do. Oh. Alarmingly so. Yes. Uh, oh. I do love wow. the gag. <laughs> you got to pretend that that's new. Um, <laughs> uh, I do love the gag when Kevin pulls them over and he says, which one of you is the smart one? And they're both like, <laughs> There's this real uncertainty. <laughs> I do. I actually kind of, despite my comment a moment ago, I, I think they're fun. They, they serve. They're they are fun. They are purely utility, but they, they do are. it. They, they do it yeah. decently. I um, got a genuine chuckle out of when they've dropped off baby Jesus, and then he's like, "No, no, no, stop, stop, stop!" And he's like, and he starts to drive, and he's like, "No, no, no!" Wait, oh, stop. yeah, yeah, yeah. When, yeah, when Garvey's watching funny. them from the like, they're trying so desperately to do this clean getaway, and they have this moment where they just have to struggle with it. Um, well, I, yeah, I don't totally disagree that a lot of this episode is is um, you know kind of middling as far as the overall stuff. I do love because I responded very strongly to the Lori Kevin dynamic in season one. I, I think it's a very powerful scene when she's with Meg delivering the divorce papers. It um, is. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I don't no, mean to cut you off. No, I, I'm, I'm just identifying it as yeah. at least on a certain that's level, one of my something rich about that episode. Yeah, that's one of my three. That's one of like if I were going to mention three specific moments that I think work really well in this episode, Lori delivering the divorce news through Meg because the guilty remnant won't allow her to speak. Um, that's that's one. The second moment for me would be the view of the loved ones dummies mm-hmm. all over everything that's a that's a pretty haunting idea just when hey you don't get yeah. utilized in extremely haunting fashion oh absolutely um so that is is a pretty affecting moment and then boy if you were on the fence about whether the guilty remnant are good people or not and then they break into houses to steal pictures of loved ones that are never coming back. Uh, that is, that's a pretty well, atrocious but, thing. But see, it's funny. Do you recall where that leads? No, okay. my memory does well, not. That's what I'm. That's I, just a moment ago. It, I wondered if you remember this. The loved ones strewn across the dummies strewn across the highway. This is signature Lindelof. He is he's building the box mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. placing these breadcrumbs. Because the dummies are a signal to the viewer, this thing exists in the universe of the show. Right, right. The the photos that they're stealing are very relevant to what's. Oh, okay. I don't to remember the, to how, the remnant. So, okay. The, in in these two episodes, the remnant buying the church and 
stealing the photos are key towards what you will ultimately learn oh, is their okay, kind okay, of plot right. of season one. Um, I'm glad I don't remember that because then yeah, that'll be, that'll probably be some revelatory experiences as but, I go through. But it, okay. it kind of affirms where you're going, but, but uh, the awfulness isn't stealing photos. It's what they're doing with them. Um, uh, gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so I, I do want to, as a final note here, I kind of love for an episode that centers on the baby Jesus doll mm-hmm. that feels a little weird, right? It feels like yeah, an odd right. thing to build the episode around, which means it must mean something. Um, right, right, right. I, I'm, I don't know if you recall this from the star Wars B side, uh, you were off fighting intergalactic, you know, bad guys. Took a lot out of me. Yeah. yeah I know. I know. Um, I'm, I'm thankful you made it out relatively unscathed, <laughs> despite that bionic hand you now have. Um, <laughs> talk about the bionic hand. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, Ian in that episode references, we we were talking about Ray, the Ray from nowhere concept. And this, this phrase he threw out there was sometimes it's just a scavenger from Jakku. Cause we were talking mm-hmm. about rise of Skywalker. Well, where I'm going with this is I love I love how this episode resolves with the baby Jesus. And what I wrote is, so Matt shows up, he saves the day with, he I had an extra and Kevin ends up throwing the initial, initial baby Jesus out the window. And I wrote, sometimes a doll is baby Jesus. Sometimes it's just a doll. And sometimes it's both. And I just really love like, like, and, and I don't want to dwell here unless you just want to, but like the things we imbue with sort of meaning, and impact and power right, the things right, that yeah. once the meaning we've assigned to them no longer applies we kind of rescind from them i don't know yeah, it's just really understood. no I, I don't exactly know how to unpack that but but something about that was really kind of powerful to me no I, yeah i understand yeah i hear where you're going um do you though yeah i do i do <laughs> i do um yeah i i would uh i would linger there for maybe a moment but i actively want to resist digging too deep into the sure. heels of this because we're gonna yeah. in you know in three weeks time we're gonna dive into season one and all that it has uh for us so uh stay tuned for that ladies and gentlemen uh that concludes another installment we for- no we, for- so- we forgot we're- to end it yeah we- we're so we're so out of sorts we with are. This. we're so out of sorts <laughs> with this so wait 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 okay. we're gonna we're, we're gonna rectify that uh, uh right now at least for the audio version sure. of this uh so <clears throat> That concludes another installment of Hashtag TV Guideposts, where we consume our leftovers once again, and we are saying goodbye to episodes three and four, where one of them was super fantastic, awesome, and amazing, and the other one was not that, but still had a lot to offer for maybe some people in some contexts somewhere, because we imbue with meaning... Sometimes it's a doll. Sometimes it's an episode. Sometimes it's Jesus. Sometimes it's TV guideposts. That's that's what we're doing. So uh, we'll see you next time. (laughs) Happy new video era, everyone. (laughs) No no kidding. Uh, So all right. Read. Nathan. <clears throat>
while I look for my notes on, on where we're going in today's TV guideposts. Scrolling and scrolling. We return to Mapleton, New York for HBO, speaking of HBO, The Leftovers, starring a bunch of people featuring sad things. Today, discussing episodes five, called Gladys, and six, called Guest. We explore, and maybe explain, before... (laughs) Screw it. On to the show. Read! We are... (laughs) That was a... Man, how funny would it have been in like the old guy post days if you were if you were flipping through it and everything, and then suddenly it was just like, oh, screw it, screw it, just <laughs> forget it, just push play. <laughs> um, jeez, read this. Oh my god, Gladys, what? what I, skipped it. I skipped it. I skipped it. I skipped it. You didn't watch it? No, 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 no. I skipped oh. the scene. Oh, the scene's awful. So it's terrible. We have, for three years, we have been covering horror films with some pretty graphic and violent stuff in it. I think the Mm -hmm. death of Guilty Remnant member Gladys is the most graphic and horrific thing I think we have ever covered on the show. It is awful. I mean, it's terrible. I mean, it's it's brutal. And I remember the first time I watched (laughs) through that show. It's awful. It's It's terrible. It's it's brutal. It's malicious. It's It's, bloody. It's malevolent. It's nasty. It's it's gross. That ain't right. It's nauseating. That ain't right. Um, I remember when I watched through the show the first time, and that moment happened, and I I can't remember what I texted you because it was years ago, but I remember I texted you something. I was like, oh, my God. Like. Like I'm what? Kidding. Oh, I don't what did I? That. Oh, I don't remember that. Come on now. <laughs> I know you. I know your memory. You don't remember no text I oh, sent you. <laughs> so why do you think I, I had uh, to reiterate the call to action so many times so I'd remember what we're asking them? <laughs> so I um, can remember having a visceral reaction to that, and that was the moment that you had identified for me that critics of the show or the show's first season pointed to. You know that that it was very dour in tone. That it was really yeah. heavy, and moments like the death of Gladys are a lot of what they pointed to. Of like, man, this is this is just so so morose and um yeah it, it brutal it uh, awful it's awful terrible it's awful terrible yeah. So for listeners who haven't watched that show, a member of the guilty remnant is kidnapped, tied to a tree, and stoned to death, and they linger on the moment. Far longer than you would expect them to. Um, it's, yeah. It's rough. Yeah. It's really rough. It's... <laughs> yes. And I would not blame <laughs> anyone for skipping it. Um, Indeed. So this episode. Read in real life. Do you think you would? This is I, I loved uh random pivot here. I loved Bill's question last week. And, and it really I love how it like threw us. Do you remember the justice question? The Carmichael. Uh, and both of us we were, were totally like, not prepared. <laughs> like, uh, He's just asked not... us a really profound question. And I yeah, yeah, I yeah. Have, I don't have this uh, queued up. You, you want to go? <laughs> not me. Nathan, what you got? I don't know, Reed. What do you think? Uh, nothing. Oh, I'm waiting for you. <laughs> That's not in the script. <laughs> Unplug him. Um, <laughs> I'm going to need to watch the movie again and come back and let you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in the spirit of Bill here, I'm going to ask you a question, and that's, do you think you would be friends or appreciate or like Matt Jamison if he was a real person? That's a really good question. I think 
Isn't I think it? I That's would like him. It is, yeah. I think I would like him. I don't know. I don't know how how close of friends we could be because he he's a lot. He's a lot. He is a lot. Um, That's true. Um, I like he's a him. handful. I like the character. I like him for all of his complexity. He's frustrating at times. Poor guy just does not know when to quit, as you'll see in in another episode uh, shortly. Um, but yeah, I, I I like him a lot. I don't know if we I don't know if we'd be somebody that we'd hang out a lot. I I, I don't know that that would happen. Well, it's interesting. I, I'm I'm kind of stumbling into this, even even uh, having asked the question. I think this I would is appreciate the... more heads up next time if you're going to just throw. <laughs> nah something at me no okay are there any more surprises waiting for me no that's it that was your surprise it wouldn't be surprises if if i told you um fair fair point sorry really wish i had another one prepped um (laughs) you know to me this is kind of the power of storytelling i was gonna say art but i think Mm. more specifically storytelling is that you are able to wrestle because because we are observing the story play out you're able to wrestle with complexities of characters that you wouldn't really be privy to in the real world like sure in the real if you're if you just know a matt jameson type exists in the world probably what you're seeing is his most volatile version right you're you're Uh, seeing the extremes that that at least i know for myself you i would probably judge kind of harshly Mm -hmm. and yet it's it's delivery by Eccleston, yes. It's writing by the by the writing team, uh, and it's it's all of this. It's performance. I love when Kevin and Matt are in the car, or I can't remember if they're in the car or Matt is a suspect in Gladys's death, and yes. Matt starts asking probing questions about wanting to see the body, and mm-hmm. Kevin just says, "You realize you're a suspect, right?" And without missing a yeah. beat, Chris Eccleston says, well, of course, I'd like to pray for her. And it's yeah. just this amazing moment of full clarity. I mean, this mm. there's there's things you can accuse Matt Jameson of. Self Lack of self-awareness is not one of them. He fully yeah. lives mm-hmm. into whatever he is. It reminds me a lot, yeah. I don't know if you ever read these, of um, the Beekner series, Beb, Leo Beb. Um, yes, uh, many years ago, but yes. In that... This is a, a sequence of books by Frederick Buechner, novels, and featured a, a character named Leo Bebb, who is this pastor who runs a diploma mill, so kind of shady, who also has a habit of exposing himself in public, but who also speaks in the most spiritual, profound way ever. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's the point is complex human being. Um, yeah, of and, course. And, and Matt reminds me of that. Um, what are some observations for you from this episode five? That's what we're so on. yeah. So I'll be I'll be upfront that I did not write Do down it. very much about this episode. I have literally uh, two moments that I want to point to. It's a good episode, um, although heavy at the onset. But uh, I didn't write out down very many uh, notable moments. One notable moment is the story that Matt tells about. Uh, Thomas and Jesus. It actually comes from the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which is an apocryphal work. It's not. It's not found in the Bible. Um, and then the other moment that I just am just galvanized by. I did remember it. I had mentioned. Can't remember if it was last week or the week prior that I don't have a strong memory for this season. I, there's only a few moments that stood out to me in a really indelible way, and one of the moments 
is Matt trying to eulogize Gladys in front of oh, the so guilty good. remnant and Lori coming out and blowing mm-hmm. the whistle right in his face. Um, I, I wrote some specific things down. I'll, I'll read what I wrote, but it just... Oh, so did you write things or did you not write things? No I, wrote, I, no, I wrote this down. Lori blowing the whistle in Matt's face is a powerful moment, one of my favorites from the whole season. The look on Matt's face, as we mentioned, stuffed with complexity. He genuinely feels like he's trying to do something that in his mind is a good thing. But of course, at the same time, he is creating a sort of violation, as it were. And Lori's reaction is such a great display of the culmination of her individual arc and how she's trying for all of the things that this guilty remnant is shady for and is questionable about. She's bought in like she's fully and completely bought into it. And so him being there eulogizing Gladys is a complete violation of so much of what they're trying to achieve or talking about. And so her blowing the whistle in his face is a really affecting moment. It is a very, very powerful moment. Uh, the episode as a whole is is a bit utilitarian, as I've used before, but that moment is just powerful, and um, and I love it a lot. That's that's really the extent of my notes on, on episode Gladys, so I'll uh, yield. I thought you, you were going to say your favorite Matt quote of the episode is, I say, f- too. <laughs> wow. I, I really do love that moment. <laughs> what well, is love? It's like it's, he's just trying to fit in. He's trying to let you know, Kevin. I'm good. We're good. You're good. You can you can drop the f bomb if you need to. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I know you're going to bleep that. So I, I wasn't. No, 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 no. I know. That. I I just I had a I had a momentary brain fart though because I thought that was in the second episode. I thought that was no. in the next episode we're doing. I didn't know that that was in Gladys. I didn't remember no. it from Gladys. I remembered it from. Uh, it's when uh, they Elena. go to. Oh, because he's trying to get in touch with Kalani. That's yeah. right. He's trying to get in touch with Kalani, and he just goes off yeah. on his phone. And then, uh, yeah, and then Matt says that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Matt, that is right. No, I, I do was love- for a second. Yeah, it's, it happens. You know, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, like Matt Jameson. I'm a lot to handle sometimes. <laughs> um, would I be friends with him? Clearly, I would. <laughs> jury's out um <laughs> i do love that there's a small scene late in this episode where we finally see the damn burst for kevin emotionally mm-hmm. where he and jill connect in a real yeah, touching right. way right, right, right um right, right. yeah I, I really i really love that but uh so that's episode five gladys is intense um i i don't know about you but and and next week's seven and eight like Six, seven, eight. There's, this is a good run. Um, yeah, it six, is. Are you just agreeing with me because I said it, or because uh, you believe it? I'm, I'm fonder of six and eight than I am of seven. But yes, yeah. six, seven, eight is, is, is a really great run. Just yeah. the level of just, just, you just dig that knife, Lackey. Would you be um, friends with Matt James? <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, you've listened to Reed for three years. Would you be friends with Reed Lackey? No. <laughs> Don't answer that. Send us your emails. Send us the rest. Don't vote on answer that question. New call to action. Um, <laughs> Quick poll. Come back, Beetlejuice. Um, so, episode six, guest. Uh, this this is this is a hell of an episode. I love this episode so much. I mean, I'm I'm pretty fond of everything in this season surrounding Nora as a character. The only character that really gives Matt Jameson a run for his money in terms of my favorite character is Nora. Um, yeah, this is a fantastic episode. Guest, guest is 
an amazing piece of storytelling. It's it's wonderful. It's really excellent. It's not quite to the level of episode three for me. Sure. But close. It's really strong. But in terms of telling, I, I understand what you're saying, but it, it has it has resonance uh, as this sort of bottle episode. Nora works for the DSD, the Department of Sudden Departure. I think that's right. Department of Sudden Departure. Yeah, so. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I was like real committed and then not at <laughs> she, all. She works for the DSD, which is the <laughs> 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 ha, who knows? <laughs> Forgot that one. Um but she's at this conference, this corporate conference, and it just gives you this sort of day in the life type of thing and where just nothing is going right, which is effectively the show at large. <laughs> but I love how it plays with this thematic idea when she goes to the courthouse and formally gets her divorce and they say, do you want to change your name too? Mm. And she says, no, I want to be Nora Durst. And I was like, yeah. man, that's it's great a line right there yeah. because it just signal it's just screaming all these attachment issues and identity issues and the episode's called guest meaning mm. there's nothing there's no identifier there um and i just i really really loved a lot of what happens in this episode um any specific things you wrote down that you want to talk about the, so in contrast to last uh episode i i wrote down at least five or six little notes here so there's so Tell much me. characterization and metaphorical exploration in the simple choice Nora makes to pay people to shoot her. Yeah. Like that, that like she wears a bulletproof vest and she's trusting that their aim will at least like they could easily hit her head with the distance that she's from them and everything like, but she pays people to shoot her with a legit gun, not like a child's BB gun or something. She pays people to shoot her while she wears a bulletproof vest. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's really stunning. Just the levels of characterization, uh, that, 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 she that is just blowing it. through those DSD funds, by the way. <laughs> <Just like> <laughs> no kidding, man. You get another grand. <laughs> <laughs> you like, I need $3,000. Okay. Yeah. No okay. problem. Sure. Um, so, uh, well, and can I comment on that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're please, moving away please. from it, one thing I love about that, and this is, this is a thematic note, but it wouldn't be one I would explode out for the season is, her paying these folks to shoot her is signaling to me, at least that everyone in this world is just desperate to feel something. And actually I'll, I'll mm. even caveat that. What's fascinating is those not GR are desperate to feel something. Those yes. GR are content to feel nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just mm. a real fascinating sort of tension and juxtaposition there. No, absolutely. Um, I feel like, so that the main conceit of this episode is that Nora Durst is attending with her association with the DSD, which is, I don't know if you remember, Nathan, it's the, the, the <laughs> Department of <laughs> I know, I remember something, Reed. It's a knuckle um, sandwich. But, but uh, she is attending this conference that uh, presumably is annual, or, or uh, yeah, yeah, it would have to be annual. Um, I remember that much. And when she, go- <laughs> when she goes, when she first arrives, somebody has already claimed her badge, and so they have to give her a guest badge, which is where the title of the episode comes from. That entire plot line is amazing. It's a great bit of creative storytelling because somebody's taken her badge. She's got to assume the role of guest. And then as she's navigating through this, she's insistent that she is Nora Durst when the hotel, uh, somebody, this, this person who she believes is impersonating her 
suddenly the hotel says like, okay, Nora Durst, you smashed hotel property, so you're off the premises and everything. And she's like, no, somebody's impersonating me. Somebody's pretending to be me. I'm supposed to be on a panel. And I just love the entire development of Plotline. This show has already played with unsolved mysteries and random disappearances like her badge. So it's played with all of these different ways that don't always get resolved in a really concrete way. So when... After all of this back and forth, she swears somebody's impersonating her, and she's like, the, the person's probably on my panel right now, and the hotel proprietor or head of security or whatever is like, okay, if we go there and nobody is on your panel impersonating you, then you leave these premises and we never see you again. And I was fully convinced first time through. I remembered it from this time around, but I was fully convinced the first time through. I was like, they're going to go and there ain't going to be nobody there. And she's going to be in this big existential crisis, not really knowing what to do with herself. So when she goes there and there is straight up somebody impersonating, yes, impersonating Nora uh, Durst, and then the hotel security guy's like, <laughs> like I guess we got to do something about this, and uh, it's just it's just really galvanizing. I, I love that moment. Um, I love everything well, about that plot. To line. your point about the creativity in, inherent there, that this episode does a ton of heavy lifting for this show mm, because yes. not just is it a brilliant kind of creative choice, this kind of identity thing. Uh, it's also a great, as you're illustrating, character choice. What it plunges Nora who relies solely on her identifiers for meaning. Uh, It also does a ton of world building for the show. It does. Because you remove her identifiers, people are speaking into her and we're learning about the world by her sort of absence of person. Yes. It's great. So it's just really, really a great sort of position. And I'll throw this out. Maybe you disagree with me. I don't know. Um, As much as I dislike the Wayne aspects of this season. I love his usage in this one. Can I read you what? my exact note? As much Please. as I despise the Holy Wayne plot line, that scene with Nora is pretty dang it's powerful. Great. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Yeah. And that's exactly well, because again, it also, you know, Lindelof loves his sort of Rashomon type of storytelling, yes, right? But you right. also not just does it re energize you perhaps or energize you for the first time to the Wayne storyline. It also gives you a whole new view on the character. Like he is, he is a charlatan and yet something else. Mm -hmm. That's pretty fascinating. Absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, that was, would you be friends with Wayne? (laughs) It depends on whether or not he hugged me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to leave that. It's kind of his, it's kind of his thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the last note that I have, literally the last note is just, you know, question 121, in your opinion, do you believe that the departed are in a better place? And um, it's, a, it's a powerful question that uh, I, I love the answer that the last person we see in the episode, uh, not just the answer that they give, which is just simply no, but the breakdown that that character has as they're giving it is really affecting. Um, and Nora's slow, like sort of almost cautious putting the pen to paper to actually check that the person said yeah. no. Um, it's, yeah, it's really affecting. This is this is a fantastic episode. This one and episode three are what I would hang my hat on. Like, <laughs> if you thought the first two episodes were dull, then just hang on for three because three is great. Right. If you right. thought Gladys was a bridge too far, hang on for Guest because Guest will just bring you right back into the show. You know, like it's, yeah. it, it, it really is an outstanding episode. It's an outstanding piece of storytelling. Um, it's it's great. It's It's really outstanding. I love it. Is it outstanding or is it outstanding? You know, it really stands out 
to me. <laughs> That's the thing. So, um... <clears throat> that has once more been TV Guideposts, where this week we discussed whether we would be Facebook friends with Matt Jameson or just follow him <laughs> or just join the Matt Jameson fan page um, in episodes 5 and 6 Gladys and Guest two episodes that both in title start with the letter G <laughs> this TV guidepost is brought to you by the letter G <laughs> woo wee ree ree <laughs> something even better are you ready nathan are i'm ready. ready okay I, I well no really nothing can be make you ready for this not show. for this one not for this one but in the spirit of that <clears throat> welcome to another edition of hashtag tv guideposts where we're going to be diving into episodes seven and eight of season one of hbo's the leftovers I'm wondering how many possessives I can include in this little introduction. Uh, We're going to be exploring the episodes Solace for Tired Feet and the much shorter named Cairo. Not the Cairo syrup, but as in the Cairo or Cairo Egypt, or Cairo, Egypt but, uh, but a place, I don't know what that voice was, but I'm here to tell you about <laughs> Sorry. the episodes from it's the Leftovers. <laughs> Please, please stop talking. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> I love, I so, love episode this, seven. The, the, the TV so, Guidepost intro, it's like it's getting more and more meta as it goes along. To, yeah. It's like you just now. That's kind of us. Now you really are picturing not the bygone days of ethereal piano music overlaying, you know, some meditative voice. Now it's just people hovering around a microphone and trying to <laughs> <laughs> use that microphone for whatever is on their mind. Um, mm. Anyway, so, Yes. Solace for Tired Feet, episode seven. Episode So seven. I'm going to throw something at you here. It's nothing profound, but just an interesting observation. Sure. Overall, none of the teenager storyline stuff is great or stands out in a real profound way in the greater context of the show. But I really do love the inventiveness that they execute on the concept of the sudden departure. Mm. And what I mean by that is the prank, which is morbid, but the, the refrigerator prank that happens, yeah, of course, you know, yes. not prank is the wrong way, but the sort of challenge, the truth or dare type of game they play, which is rooted in, they got some kid to go into it. Yeah. October 13th happens. Is it 13th 14th. or 14th? It's the 14th, but yeah. Mm-hmm. 14th, October 14th happens. And he, he, departs within it and so it becomes this weird totem of sort of cosmic influence for these kids which so i just really love that as a as a concept so we obviously have uh, a certain sort of faith-based background in which conversations around the event known as the rapture all all varieties of conversations have taken place about it i'm not interested in the moment at those the concept of just a vanishing is a powerful concept. And I feel like Lindelof and Parada 
are creative and inventive enough to really explore all of the different maybe not every single facet but there i mean there is so much baked into simply the occurrence of a vanishing that i feel mm-hmm. like they capitalize on in some really profound ways um in some really inventive ways like like visualizing a pranked kid getting stuck in a refrigerator and they open it up and he's gone He's not there. I mean, like, uh, again, it's just, it's really powerful. The show has, uh, I touched on a little bit last week, the show has, you know, sort of tapped into uh, moments like the missing bagel and Nora Durst's missing credentials and just all of these missing things uh, that I think the show really does a great job of being creative and inventive in the way it plays around with those metaphors. And um, so, yeah, I, I find that really compelling, deeply compelling, actually. Um. This episode for me kind of, uh, even though last week I said six, seven, eight, it's more because as I watched them all in quick succession, but is, uh, forgettable is the wrong word because there's a great run with Scott Glenn at the end. But other than that, I did like the dramatic turn of Tom discovering the other, the, yes. the, the, oh, do- yes. the doppelgangers of he and Christine. Like that's, that's Absolutely. a really, yes. You don't even have to give a ton of screen time to it just to kind of place it there and yeah. turn the, you know, turn the show on its head a little bit yeah. or turn their, those characters journeys on their head a little bit. So that was really great. Honestly, I have. So this is an episode I had mentioned last week that I'm fonder of episode six guest, which is like a benchmark mm-hmm. of this season. And the episode we're going to be talking about after this is also really powerful and affecting this episode seven. I wrote down two things. And the only things I wrote down were exactly what you just mentioned. I think that narrative pivot is really strong, and they do some some cool things with it in the moment. It's it's energizing. And I like Scott Glenn. I even like Scott Glenn's character. I feel like this piece of the story so far has gone nowhere. It has created a couple of nice interactions, but I didn't have a lot this time around to really hang my thoughts on in terms of, what exactly he's playing with. Scott Glenn is giving an amazing performance and he's committing wholeheartedly. I love the way he interplays with these voices that he hears in his head. But I think I was expecting, even this time around, having already seen the show, I think I was expecting a little bit more out of this episode because he shows up, rescues Jill from the refrigerator bit. And then I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. We're going to start getting into his character a little bit. But then even when we get into his character a little bit, I feel like this episode sort of leaves a lot on the table in a way that uh, that that I found it difficult to sort of connect to this one. Six, in the same way that episode four kind of left me a little hollow following how powerful episode three is, I wondered if episode seven left me a bit the same given how much I love episode six. Maybe that's not a fair comparison, but that that's what I'm feeling. Well, you know, these premium style shows, and by these, I mean things like this, even like a Watchmen, which is also Lindelof, but even thinking things like Game of Thrones, develop, for whatever reason, this pattern of like big, important episode in terms of maybe mythology or events that kind of have a, a decrescendo afterwards. Um, so, so maybe, maybe I mean, that's pure speculation, but maybe that's something that's happening there, but also something I wonder about where I, I haven't read the book. So I, so I can't really speak to how much is or isn't in the original tech in the source text, but I wonder if 
Scott Glenn's presence in this episode specifically, because he has a he has a decent amount of screen time late in it. Yes. Again, speculation. Where the show goes, where the series goes with uh, Kevin's relationship to Patty, effectively. Yes. Uh, it's not really spoiler territory. Requires a lot of buy-in mm-hmm. as an audience member. Yeah. And agreed. I just wonder, I, I wonder if they knew, again, not knowing what's in the book. I wonder if they knew on this back half of season one, okay, this is roughly where we're going to aim. If we do, if we come back, like who knows if they knew at that point, but this is roughly where we're going to aim this dynamic. So we really have to cement what is kind of going on with Scott Glenn to, to illustrate the inheritance of it. That same phenomena in gosh, the actor's name just escaped me, but Kevin, um, Justin, oh, Justin does that make sense? Like, I just wonder if they're just, they're doing some, some string pulling to try to lay some, some mythology groundwork. I don't know. So, so it, the theory makes sense. I would find it more, more easy to embrace if I did not know that by some admissions in Lindelof's interviews and stuff that that he kind of approaches every season as if he's never going to get another one and so we i know that that's part of his at least announced creative process that he does not run the three-year game he runs the one-year game and if i never get another one i want to make sure my story is told post lost yes post lost um (laughs) yeah because we know what doing the long game did for him on twitter and everything so um so it's one of those things where knowing that about his creative process now and also knowing about some of where season two and three go, I think it's probably more likely. And again, this is all speculation. Yours is speculation and no more or less likely than mine. Um, I feel that it's it, for, in my mind, it's it's perhaps that he knew in developing season two and then ultimately in developing season three. Because spoiler alert, if you've never watched the show, the the father of Kevin Garvey um becomes a very big player in season three, like thematically and as a character and everything like his journey is substantiated a lot more. And, um, and so I feel like that probably grew out of them utilizing what was already on the table rather than them playing with the notes right now. I cannot remember the father character from the book well enough to know how much of this is substantiated. I know Kevin Garvey's character had a father who went crazy. I remember that much about the novel. But I seem to recall that in the novel, he was he was not the chief of police. He was the mayor or something. He was like a high political official or something. And so uh, that, that piece is just kind of unknown to me. That having been said, I think Scott Glenn's performance compensates from w- for what I would ding as narrative deficiencies in an episode like this. Scott Glenn is electric to watch. Like he's a really... Uh, He's just an engaging performer, and in in this more so than in other things I've seen him in. I like him as an actor, but I think he's mm-hmm. particularly strong in this, in a way that I think is um, makes it sort of worth hanging on to. But uh, I just can't get around some of what I would consider it to be narrative deficiencies uh, on on this part. And like I said, those are the only two things that, as I was watching it, um, you know, I I wrote down again. Uh, I, I've never been. I've been very vocal about the fact that I don't like the Holy Wayne stuff, but I I do like that plot wrinkle that Tom is not a unique uh, character in in his situation, um, and I like Scott Glenn's performance enough and some of the interior moments of that to give it some credibility. 
but beyond that, I don't. I, 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 this is not an episode I'm I'm very uh, sure. endeared to, just in general. Um, which is clear. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Speaking of I'm just episodes saying. we're endeared to. So, <laughs> Riri, I've got like, geez, Louise, uh, a normal fear. I've got episodes worth of notes on this episode. But can we start from the end? Yeah, let's do that. And we're and talking about of, episode eight now, not episode yes. seven. But yes, we're talking about episode eight. Cairo, New York, where Cairo, Kevin, New York. Cairo, New York, um, potato, potato, uh, would spend summers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote the last 10 minutes of this episode is Shakespeare. Like it is mm-hmm. otherworldly. The, I'm always so fascinated with, uh, the craft. You know, we did a whole episode last year on, on, on writing King's memoir of the craft and, you look at the things that they choose to make happen, the, the, the narrative things, the beats that have to happen in this episode, mm. which culminates in the death of Patty, oh. but not just the death of Patty, the suicide of Patty. Yes. And, yes. and you work backwards and the scripting magic that has to happen for me as the viewer to not feel like you to, to, um, say you earned that. Does that make sense at all? Like, in other words, oh yeah, oh yeah. You can't just you can't just jump into these sorts of narrative beats. Like the character progressions have to make some sense for these, at least in this episode, how it ends. Wild choices to be made. Yeah, of course. And I just am always so impressed with the craftsmanship that goes into writing characters. It reminds me of, and I referenced this on our Stephen King shorts conversations i even think you went and found it the one about the, the women driving the van to the theme park or whatever yes this making sense? herman Wook is still alive yeah 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 mm-hmm. and the family and they end up killing themselves and their kids in the back yeah by driving off the road yeah. and and this weird thing that happened in the reading of that which was i i understand why these characters have chosen this and right. that's a really skillful thing to pull off sure absolutely. and so in an episode like uh, this one, when it gets there, you're like, bravo. I mean, yeah, that is absolutely. In performance and in writing, just masterful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel like it's a, a I mean, you've sung the praises of Ann Dowd before as, <laughs> as, as it. frequently. Yes, absolutely. As frequently as she plays characters you kind of love to hate, she is an absolutely incredible performer. It's stunning what she's able to pull off in both subtle and overt ways. Um, and that, I mean, I can't even in a conversation like this unpack some of what they discuss because it has to be sort of experienced in that stream. So the premise of episode eight, if you, if you're trying to keep up and, and, and kind of waiting or still listening to this segment before you actually watch it, the premise of episode eight is the character of Patty, who is the, the head of this local chapter of the guilty remnant and has been, uh, they've had a frustrating, she and Kevin have had a frustrating sort of dynamic of interaction because she causes him a lot of grief and of frustration. But then, uh, she reached out to him for help when their member Gladys was brutally murdered. And so they've had this, this sort of irritating dynamic. Well, the premise would have the premise of this episode would have you believe that Kevin Garvey blacked out, elicited the help of his 
I friend, can you call him friend? I don't know. This this guy who hunts dogs and and has no name and is just like a spectral figure in Kevin's life. So, um but real. But real, a real person. Yeah. Um and so uh presumably Kevin blacked out, enlisted his help to kidnap Patty, tie her up in a cabin off in Cairo where uh they have they are holding her. And when they're holding her there, he says he's going to, you know, like they dance back and forth with whether or not they're going to let her go, whether they're going to kill her, whether, you know, all of these crazy things. And the last like 10, 15 minutes of the episode, she's having this real existential and very thought provoking conversation with him about a variety of different things. And it kind of culminates in him cutting her loose and saying that he's going to let her go and he's going to admit to what he's done. And it's at that point that he lets her go, that she decides to end her life. And like you said, they had to emotionally and narratively, they had to earn that. And I feel like the episode fully does um, in a very complex way that you kind of have to endure and experience to really understand how they've how they've done it. I had forgotten that she killed herself. I knew that she eventually died because of where I know, because <laughs> I guess, mild spoiler alert, she does not leave the show. She dies, but she does not leave the show. And because of where I knew she would again appear and how I knew she would begin appear again appear, um, I knew that she died, but I could not remember in this moment that she took her own life until it actually well, happened. And that and the revelation that they staged Gladys's death. Yes. Or that not they staged it as in it's fake, but then they did it. That they killed her. Yes. Which is, ugh. And it adds some new weight to that brutal moment because she's clearly in on it, but somehow loses her nerve at the end because she the guilty remnant one of their biggest aspects is that they're not supposed to speak that haven't been said for a cult leader for a leader of a cult who are devoted to silence uh and dad has a lot of lines <laughs> in several episodes at this point um but she she talks all throughout this episode but uh yeah she uh, uh gladys as she was being murdered you know begged them to stop uh which is again adds to the brutality of it but finding out that she that they staged that death or that they you know sort of ordered that death and that now it's rooted in patty's own sort of self-chosen martyrdom and suicide it's it's really affecting it sounds uh probably very grim and a bit like why in the world would i watch a show like that but when you when you hear this dialogue and you hear some of the concepts that they're playing with it's it's incredible well, and it's really incredible and, you know, I feel like this episode and this scene specifically, or or rather the collection of scenes between Kevin and Patty really shore up why this was a valuable conversation for you and I to have on the show. Yes. And so far as the things we're trying to talk about. And I, I, while it was happening was typing basically her final monologue when mm. he accuses her of still, like, like, why won't you let this go? The, the, the sudden departure. And yes. And she says, I think about it every waking moment. What else is there to think about? Yeah. It doesn't matter what happened because he ch kind of challenges. Do you know where they went? Do, what happened? What do you know? Right. She says, it doesn't matter. The difference between you and me is I accept that it did while you push it aside and ignore it. We strip ourselves of everything that distracts us from it. That keeps us from remembering. We strip away attachment and fear and love and hatred and anger until we are erased. 
a blank slate. We are living reminders of what you tried desperately to forget, and we are ready and waiting. <laughs> yeah. It's, Man, it's, it's intense. It yeah, is intense. And the intense. two of them are, that's just a, an electric scene. Uh, it really this, is. Yeah. Otherwise, this episode's riddled with a lot of thematic stuff that, you know, we can touch on or not. Um, I, I don't know if you caught this. It's Memorial Day that they're prepping for and this oh, episode airs not. the week after Memorial Day. Wow. I did not catch that. We should have, we should have worked that out a little differently, but I it's didn't, all good. Wow. Wow. Now, I don't mean this to be a dumb question, but a couple of weeks ago, you said you couldn't recall what the GR's plot was. Or, I mean, has it resurfaced to you what's about to happen? Not the specifics, but the generalities have. Like, because of that moment where they unload the truck of, right. of the bodies. The um, ones, yes. Right. So, um, I, I remember something about, I, I think part of their intention, and again, the details are foggy. I watched this show once a few years ago and now I'm catching up with it and I'm not skipping ahead for, you know, context or whatever. But I seem to remember somebody saying something like when when whatever their plot is, is divulged. I seem to remember somebody from the Guilty Remnant like writing down like we made them remember or, you know, something like it's kind of throwing grief in people's faces. But I don't know exactly the specifics of exactly what they're what they're playing with but i think it's uh obviously it involves that company that makes you know uh bodies of uh people from photographs and stuff that they've stolen but i don't remember what their end game is or at least what their what the specifics of their details are but we'll find out next we episode we don't rush to end game read nope we don't we don't um and I, and i would say <sighs> the compulsion is strong to want to sort of dig in to some of those kinds of things. Um, I would encourage that we, that we hold some of that because this is meant to just be a sort of a, let's sure, yeah, follow yeah, the I plots. Know. I was just um, making sure I wasn't ignoring anything that I really wanted to talk about. That wasn't the theme. Yeah. Um, but next week we will be having a full conversation about season one of the leftovers. We'll be covering episodes nine and 10 in their specifics and then having a full thematic, that will be the substance of next week. It will be an episode on season one of The Leftovers and all of its um, narrative and thematic glory. I think the only thing for me that we've missed mentioning here that I do think is pretty significant is obviously Jill's personal journey, um, you know, sort of confronting Nora about the gun, finding that coming up hollow, that brutal exchange she has with her friend on the grass. Oh, gosh, that's uh, terrible. Brutal exchange. And then breaking into Nora's house, finding the gun, then giving up the search, only to find her way uh, on the doorsteps of the guilty remnant, asking if she can stay. Um, it's there's a lot. What do you of mean giving up the search? The search was for the gun. Yeah, but I felt, and maybe you read it differently. I felt that she was wanting to find the gun so she could do something about that, throw it in Nora's face, confront her with it, or something like that. Um, I but, think. To me, and this is this is symptomatic stuff I'm trying to hold off at the moment, but to me, my understanding of that is it's less about anything that happens in light of the gun and whether the gun is still in Norris' possession. Because oh, I at see. all. Okay, got and, it. Yeah. And, you know, because this question hangs heavy over this episode and over this series, can we be okay? Yes. Can okay. after Understood. trauma yeah. you be made okay? And to Jill, she sees post Wayne hug Nora, 
mm-hmm. and doesn't buy it. Although, yes. uh, you know, we, I think Nora is truthfully on a better path at this moment than she was pre Wayne. So I, I do think it's real and not false, but Jill and, and I think a lot about, uh, even though I don't love later parts of the series, but in game of Thrones, when Tyrion, maybe the first time he has scenes with Daenerys and owns up to his cynicism and says, a cynic is just someone looking for something to believe in. Right. Right. And I think about that with Jill, like she's desperate to believe you can be okay in this Mm, world. mm, And so mm -hmm. the absent, if Nora has, has divested herself of this gun is a signal to her. Okay. Something can be corrected and made whole. And, and so that's why finding it shatters that illusion for her and why she, to me ends up at the GR, which is, we can't be okay. We're not going to be okay. I like, and will henceforth adopt your reading of that of that moment because I think because uh, I think it's substantive. I think I, I I agree with it. There's just too many narrative threads that 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 reading of it makes sense. So um, so yeah, I I agree. So uh, if that's okay with you, I think that brings us to another uh, moment of. <clears throat> well, ladies and gentlemen, it has been found. It has been sought for. It was missing, but now we know where it is, and uh, I'm not quite sure what it is, but it's there, and uh, we we just talked about it. It's in The Leftovers, <laughs> Season 1, Episodes 7 and 8, on this installment of Hashtag TV Guideposts. Uh, join us next week for not only coverage of Episodes 9 and 10, but a full conversation about all of the thematic complexities of Season 1 of HBO's The Leftovers. So, um... Bye-bye now. Talk to you then. Okay. Bye. See ya. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're going to need the audience to do that one too for us. (laughs) No, that one's too fun. It's too up the moment. That's the highlighted part. It can get wordy. If I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed. Not departed from the commandment of his lips, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. But he stands alone, and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. He carries out his decree against me, and many such plans he still has in store. That is why I am terrified before him. When I think of all this, I fear him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. 
Because I am not silenced by the darkness, by the thick darkness that covers my face. Amen. Read. Read. Nathan. Are we going to cry for the next hour or are we going to cry for the next hour and a half is the question. So we are at the end of our trek. Mm. (laughs) That's not going to get old quick. Um, (laughs) Of Leftovers, HBO's Leftovers, season one. Uh, We will feature specifically episodes nine and ten, but I had some trivial bits if I don't know if you do. Hey, I have none. Well, cool. I'm going to go through some of these trivial bits because I have been feasting on leftovers um so and see what you did there you like that you like that let me look up something real quick stay tuned um so i do want to highlight a podcast that i discovered um called the living reminders uh clearly it is Mm. off no longer being produced, but was coincided with the show was actually not the official HBO version uh, that I could um, deduce, but they did interviews with Lindelof, with Parada, with um, Ann Dowd, Carrie Coon, uh, Chris Eccleston. Wow. Um, wow. You know, this has come up once or twice, but Matt Jamison in the book is only in it for like two pages. I That's did remember how that. small yeah. his role is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really fun. I, I referenced the podcast because that and a YouTube video uh, is primarily where I get some of this information here. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, secondly, you were right. You referenced recently, though, your aim was near the mark. Uh, Kevin Jr. was mm-hmm. the mayor, not Kevin Sr. Ah, so Kevin mm-hmm. Jr., Kevin uh, Justin Throw's character was the mayor of Mapleton, not the chief of police, as he is Got in the it. show. Okay. Yeah. I thought so I this. This you're going to find really fascinating. Um, this I found in external interview source, but Eccleston references it in his interview on Living Reminders. So when he was on Fresh Air, he told Terry Gross that playing Matt Jameson on on Leftovers was one of several life experiences that had led him to stop identifying as an atheist. No, really? Wow. Mm -hmm. His quote from that show is, I'm no longer sure now. I had made a great play a number of years ago about my atheism and things have changed in my life and I'm no longer certain. So I guess I would have to say I'm agnostic. I had children. I lost my father. I watched him suffer through dementia, had my own crisis earlier in the year. Um, Maybe some of the issues and leftovers, my relationship with Lindelof, uh, because Matt Jameson in the novel has such a short role. Damon was surprised I was pursuing that role, but I pointed out to him that it's a great dramatic character, an Episcopalian reverend who possibly was not taken in a biblical rapture. It is just there for the taking. He claims, he, Lindelof, that I said the man's reaction to that would be to become more religious. I don't remember saying that, but that's what Damon claims. We had a discussion about faith, and Damon said, look, that's a difficult question to answer. Um, and he says, I find myself there now, really. I just feel that when I was stomping around saying I was an atheist, I was not thinking about it enough. I think I was, I think there's certainly a huge part of me that feels intense anger against organized religion, but I do feel at the moment a little more spiritually open to what may be religious beliefs. Just this really amazing 
Wow, that's and, and that was put very lovely. Like that's a clear that's clearly a very thoughtful way to enter into that that sort of awakening. And uh and yeah, that's wow, that's really well, that's really interesting. And then you'll love this. So in this YouTube video and it's um it's an interview it's Lindelof and Parada. They're not so much interviewing each other, but they are just in conversation about season one specifically. Yeah. And so apparently in the book, Matt Jamison abandons faith and mm. referenced just there by Eccleston Lindelof in this interview says in the book, Matt Jamison has left his belief system, but Eccleston asked, what if Matt doubled down? Mm. And that is reflected in the roulette sequence. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? And that, oh, there's so many great moments in this show, but I still think that roulette oh, scene is one, so of, good. It's one of the best moments of the show. It's great. Well, and, and watching that oh. little video, and I'll, I'll post this in the show notes, it's like 15 minutes long, but they cut to the scene of the smile in oh, the, at the wow. roulette table. Yeah, it's right, great. right, right. That's uh, awesome. Lindelof says, Nora is the most direct embodiment of the show that we want to be making. The most direct mm. victim of the sudden departure, but really just striving for what to do next. Yeah. Um, and this is just a fun little funny anecdote from Lindelof. He said, again, this is circa the end of season one. He said he was surprised people considered the first season bleak. But then looking <laughs> through that lens, he saw it and then said, we're going to stone Gladys anyway. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, those are fun. I'm glad you dug those up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun. I, I, I love the show and love listening to people talk about the content of it. So we are looking at episodes nine and ten. There is no need for yeah. uh, TV guidepost music. This is the Garveys at their best and the prodigal mm-hmm. son returns. My last note here is Lindelof refers unsurprisingly to the Garveys at their best as his favorite episode of season one. That, you know, it's interesting because... Yeah, this episode particularly, like, I love that it exists, and I love so much about it, and I feel like one of the most impactful moments of the entire season is the ending of this episode. Oh, man. Um, for In so many ways. Um, so, yeah, I can understand. I, I don't think like I would cite it as- I feel like coming. No, no. I mean- Everybody I know is Everybody has a- read. Yeah, What's everybody I know is good. <laughs> I was trying to quote it. And you, I you, know, you got I know. Oh, can I let you do um, it? So, uh, no, but I, I can't quite cite it as my favorite episode, though I do love a lot of things about it, uh, and I understand well, why some people Well, it's the most would. Lostian of this season, I think. Yeah, like well, because it goes this, back in time, of course. Yeah, yeah, and just, you know, filling in gaps. Um, I do love, that's my first note, I love the way they play with the reveal that you're about to see into the past, because... Up until that point, he's jogging, and then mm-hmm. he gets to this house that you don't recognize initially, but you're like, hmm, maybe this is, you know, further down, and he and Nora have done whatever, they've moved on, and, like, Laurie is intentionally, intentionally obscured in the background, uh, out of focus, until finally she walks in, and it solidifies that, like, oh, we're dealing we're dealing with something in the past, because yeah. here's here's Laurie, and uh, either in the past or in the far distant future, um, but, uh, yeah, I just love the way that they played with that a little bit um i think one of my favorite elements of this episode is the turn of Lori being the therapist for patty yeah i mean yeah. that is such a wild card to play mm. and yet 
makes perfect sense about why their dynamic is the way it is in the present. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because because that moment when Patty's sitting there saying something big is, <sighs> you know, something bad is about to happen. And it does. The it's big subs- one. Yeah, the big one. And it substantiates so much why Lori would get to a place to where she would like, man, gosh, maybe Patty was onto something. Maybe Patty mm-hmm. is onto something and then therefore join the guilty remnant. Um, yeah. It, yeah. That's that was a really, really great pivot. Um, what else you got about this episode? So I, to be honest, I didn't take a lot of notes. I wrote down Kevin's dad's line. That's great. Which is so, so wonderful. He says, uh, you know, and the part that I wrote down is just, he's telling him, he said, you have no greater purpose because it is enough. And yeah. So anyway, go well, ahead. Well, because Kevin immediately beforehand, who we know is wrestling with his own sort of anger issues, self-worth issues, sure, sure, um, whatever you want to call it. He says, why isn't it enough? Mm. And he's referring mm explicitly to his family right and kevin senior says every man rebels against the idea that this is it he fights windmills he saves damsels all in search of greater purpose you have no greater purpose because it is enough yeah yeah that's great back yeah um i did want to mention in uh the garbies at their best i love a lot of what the performers get to do that's new for them in this new context i feel terrible for the poor actor playing Jill. She gets the awful end with the, the braces. Stick. The braces and the oh, ew, just she reminds me of Jimmy Fallon's ill, you know. It's it's ill. Ill. That is exactly what it it didn't it didn't click with me watching it, but it does now. That is Jimmy Fallon's ill. <laughs> so funny. Um yeah, so it's like back, I back his house. <laughs> I do. I, I I agree with you there. So I spent this entire episode just sort of enjoying it, and 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 again, not taking very many specific notes. Um, but I have to say before we move on into the finale of the season, that whole like four minutes of departure scene is mm. just. I was m- clenching my fists. I was oh. just like. Uh, like um under the shadow i was laying in bed watching this and i was just laying there with my fists at my side oh just man. like well because, so so tense because you kind of can presume obviously you you acclimate early on that this episode is in the past so we're seeing everything as it's progressing through certain stages of people's lives pre-departure it, it's a pretty safe assumption that before the episode is over, you will experience the departure. But where everybody is in the mm-hmm. moment, I just, I was stunned. And this is, again, my second time seeing it. But I had forgotten so many subtle things. Like, I love that the kids are all holding hands and igniting yep. the, the uh, I, I forget what you would call that, but it's the science sure. experiment where the, the collective, yeah, it's uh, the collective energy of everybody joining hands is creating like a static electricity and causing this this obelisk or whatever to ignite and i love that the departure happens so everybody's faces are smiling but suddenly the light just goes out and i'm like oh my god that is that is incredible and then of course you have all of the other different moments culminating into the most 
I, it's I, terrible. Oh my gosh! Because you have so I, I just want to cite the big moments that they give you. So obviously you give you know uh, Jill and Tom are like holding hands with all these other school kids, and the light goes out. So that's one thing. Um, and then Nora has mm. just been just mm. so frustrated because she was waiting for a phone call about a job offer. And then a, her child spills something right on her phone and she tries to answer right as it's ringing and she tries to answer it and it won't answer. And so she yells out in rage at them as she's trying to dry her phone. And then they're all gone. Husband she turns and two around. kids are all gone. And yeah, just that look on her face when she sees what's happened. And then, of course, it moves to I had, I had completely forgotten this, that. Kevin, who I knew was having an affair at the moment it happened, but had completely forgotten that his lover departs. So like oh, yeah. that yeah. image where he just pulls the sheet back because yeah. she's just gone. And, and it's, uh, that's stunning. But of course, the worst of all is that Lori is having what is presumably, I guess, her first ultrasound or an early mm-hmm. ultrasound mm-hmm. for a pregnancy that she has not yet told Kevin about. And she's having the ultrasound and it is in the midst of her having the ultrasound that we hear the scream outside the facility that something is going on. And then the last moment, the image, uh, the, the last image of the episode is she stares back at the ultrasound machine where before tears there was a baby eyes, yeah. and a heartbeat. And she's now got tears in her eyes as she leans up from the table. And it doesn't show you the screen, yeah. but you know exactly what she's seeing. And that that is staggering to me. That is it is devastating but it is so as a as a story narrative sort of escalation it's incredibly powerful um and for everything it means for that character it's just yeah this is an out is an outstanding piece of storytelling it really is did you have any other notes on it before we move into the finale narrative wise because we're gonna have a lot of time to talk about themes did you catch did you understand the moment when kevin is smoking and the women pull up to him and they say, are you ready? So, n- no. What I took that moment to be was I took that moment to be something like just sort of like a, a cultish sort of figure, but I didn't know if it had any sort of particular resonance. So, no, if there is some, I mean, it, it might have missed me. Well, what is Kevin doing right there? And what is he wearing? He's wearing a white T-shirt and he's smoking. These women pull up and they yeah. say, are you ready? And he says, excuse me, I thought you were someone else. I think it's it's the GR. It's the seeds of the GR. They're they're collecting. They're gathering. So, so that that is so here's what's interesting. I That's how I took it based on his look. Like why would they interpret otherwise? So, but go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. I don't think you're wrong because I even had that notion as I was watching it, but I'm just like it's just so strange to me because they didn't I don't know, it's because I don't know how to contextualize that it hasn't happened yet. You know, like uh, like well, the GR I mean, doesn't Patty. exist. And, I sure, mean, clearly, oh. all I'm all I'm saying is clearly there were murmur. And in fact, you know what? I'm going to throw this little uh, missile through the roof. Um, <laughs> Tom Parada adding to this particular moment. Well, he doesn't. It's not him referencing this moment, but to the, our conversation, he says of crafting the novel, he wanted to avoid the rapture as a conceit in order to avoid the secularism versus Christianity conversation. And instead the sudden departure invites religious improvisation. And I just think there's something really fascinating to consider. And you've got Lindelof who 
never met a mystical sort of storytelling point he didn't want to indulge. Right, I, right. I, I think it's signaling just that there are people attuned to what's about to happen and Patty senses okay. it and they're mm. starting to sort of gather as part of it. Mm. Um, wow. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. That's all I interpreted that as it, I just found it interesting and telling that it's because he's wearing a white t-shirt. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Um, then we get to the friggin just, just talk about a missile into the roof. This finale, uh, the prodigal son returns, which, I have a lot of notes on this one. Um, my very first note is perhaps my most trivial one. Um, I've always loved the song "Nothing Else Matters" by Metallica, uh, but yeah. that sparse, like, yeah, string-infused instrumental. It's just revelatory in everything. You know, like it's yeah. It's well, powerful. I want to come back to that scene, but there's a scene before it. It's funny as troubled as the wayne story is i don't know if you'll agree with this i actually really like the actor who plays tommy like he he feels Mm, mm. in it he's very committed you know i I don't know i I find him uh just just part of a bad storyline um but what was funny is in the scene early and and you know you'll recall this having just watched it but christine leaves the baby yes but before that happens, I kept thinking, like, I can't remember what happens to Christine. Does she die right here? No. And then she, <laughs> then she leaves the scene like, oh, that's, that's why. <laughs> that's funny. Never to be seen again. She nope. gone. Nope. Um, you know, the the nothing else matters scene. What I love about that and what I think this show is at least in on one level so good at is you've got Jill and Laurie sitting there and Jill demanding that she talk, right? Yes. Yeah. And the guilty remnant preach such intense dis or detachment. Mm, mm. But in that moment, Laurie realizes she's attached. And what I love about that moment is Jill right there for Laurie is a living reminder. Mm. It is, Wow. It is your, it is, it is, it is the intimacies and the attachments that remind you who you are. Yeah. And, and wow. it's just a real, I don't know. I just loved that scene. Um, right after that is Nora finding the bodies of her family. That is guilty remnants. End game here is. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about tru- that. Is truly horrific. Like it is. So. It is it is cruelty on a level worse than any sadistic horror movie villain that we have ever covered. Like the fact that Nora would just wake up and yeah. come down there and find them because it is so like them. So this is so, so so what happened for listeners who you know have not watched the show or whatever. We've we we mentioned earlier that there are these there's this company that will take photographs of your departed loved ones and craft a mannequin of them, a, a, a relatively lifelike, you know, with, with skin and whatever mannequin of them and send it to you so that you can bury them. Or so, you know, it, it's a, it, it's a totem, if you will, of exactly, you know, what, uh, how you can uh, sort of make your way through you know, processing this grief and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, and you may have just said this, I'm sorry to have a body to bury even like, just yeah, 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 yeah. To have, to have a body to bury. 
So what the guilty remnant did is they snuck into people's houses the night of the holidays and stole a bunch of photographs, which people didn't know why they were doing that. I couldn't remember why they were doing that. Then where they get their money, I don't know, but they sent off you know, exorbitant amounts of money to get these departed loved ones made into these mannequins, and then they snuck back into people's houses and put those mannequins in their houses. So these people presumably woke up and found not their loved ones back returned to them, but the soulless, lifeless... Facsimiles. Yeah, facsimiles is a great word. Like, just these these fabrications of what they... That look enough like them to make it so painful and real that they're gone and uh, and to be this just sort of enraging uh, kind of pouring salt into the wound, like just completely throwing it in their faces. And I'm like, this is, this is some sadistic crap. This is beyond just like sort of reminders or whatever. This is awful. And people's reactions, of course, are incredibly violent. And these people begin to you know, kill members of the guilty remnant and beat them within an inch of their life. They set the entire guilty remnant compound uh, ablaze. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's it's an understandably very visceral and, and violent reaction. To so what you done. had been saying the last couple of weeks of, of, you know, not having uh, concretely remembered what happened. Yeah. At, you know, did going into this episode, you remember, did you know, like, I didn't fully remember. In fact, what I thought happened was I thought something about that building, like where they were stacking up all the clothes and where mm-hmm. they were doing everything. I thought that, yes, the church. I thought there was going to be something that took place at the church. So I was remembering wrongly oh, okay. until okay. until Nora woke up and f- came down and found yeah. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then it all clicked together. The moment that I did remember, oddly enough, of all things to remember, the moment that I did remember is, and I, d- I couldn't remember who it was, but Meg. Meg. Yeah, you bloody. said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We uh, made them something remember. Like, yeah, and so that, you know, memory sort of pinged to me, but I, but yeah, I couldn't, uh, anyway. Well, and so, what's so yeah. wild about the the mannequin things is how, is how approximate they appear and yet how ghoulish and uncanny at the same time. Mm, like, yeah, mm-hmm. they're which, which just adds to the effect. Oh, Excuse me. Right. Man. Just adds to the effect of just horror. And yeah. Trauma. Nora's People reaction who, oh, is gosh. dreadful. She falls apart. I mean, like, Oh my gosh. But then it's like, Oh God, I love Nora as a character. I just love, love her character so much. She falls apart and just becomes this puddle of emotion. But then we see her again sitting at the table with them, like holding yes. their hands. And I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah, it's yeah, it's incredible. It's really incredible. Well, wow. That's not in the book. I don't remember that in the book. Th- what? Guilty Remnant's plan. I don't remember that in the book. It would surprise me if it's not. I, I don't know. I haven't seen contrary or affirming otherwise, but. I don't remember a I lot don't about. I don't, I don't. Rem, I don't remember a lot about the book, but I am almost positive that that end game is. If, if it's in the book, I am much more confident that it is not executed. If it's in the book, it might be something that is like referenced or talked about as something. Well, we'll send this episode to, to Tom Parada and let him yeah, validate great. one way or that's the great. other. Yeah. Um, have him on, and the two of you can chat it out about what's in, not great. or is in his book. I, lo- um, I love his book talking- club part two. <laughs> Exactly. I love talking to writers about what I can't remember is in their book. Like yeah, how yeah, forgetful. Yeah. Sure. Like I love that. Yeah. Sir, I read your book. 
Boom. Um, That'd be a great idea. Matt, my favorite character. He's all over it. Um, (laughs) Well, and what I love so much about how this season is structured, and I, I alluded to this throughout our discussion of the episodes along the way, is you know you we what you're referencing is the events in mapleton that occurred during this final episode what we've kind of skipped over but is worth coming back to is the events of this episode that still take place out of the cabin um and so so uh patty has taken her life out of the cabin uh kevin calls the one person who will believe anyone more or less uh (laughs) And I actually don't say that blithely. Um, yeah. And that's Matt. And Matt comes out and delivers what is one of my favorite scenes of this season. Uh, and let me find it here. Matt shows up and he believes Kevin's story that Kevin didn't actually murder Patty. And Patty's body is just in a in a pool of her own blood and, you know, lifeless and gross. Yeah. And Matt goes over to close her eyes and Kevin stops him. And he says, if you touch her, then we're in this together. Yeah. And Matt yeah. closes her eyes and says, then let's be in it. And mm. that is when I texted you. I don't know if I'd be friends with Matt Jameson. But I want to be a friend like Matt Jameson. I mean, yeah, what? Yeah, an amazing character. Yeah, he's, he's and then incredible, has man. Kevin. Is that is that from Job that he's reading? I didn't look it up. I think it I, is. I believe it is. I didn't look it up either, but I, I believe it is. Um, that whole scene is so powerful. It's amazing. Oh, With and then Kevin's breaking down when he says, "I have not departed." Did you yes, guess that? Yes, and he pauses at the word "departed." Oh my gosh. Yeah, that whole moment is such a powerful moment for Justin Theroux as an actor and a performer, but for that character too, it's it just an incredible scene. And Matt at the end, just a simple amen, and then yeah. you know gets gets on with it. Uh, well, as oh. an insert, as an insertion there, listening to that uh, Living Reminders podcast interview with Eccleston, he recounts a story, which is probably just a mix in this journey for him to agnosticism as it were uh where he was unfamiliar with the story of job and Mm, previous mm. to leftovers he had been there was some event in the uk like a like a a dedication or some centennial event of a major cathedral that he and several other british actors of renown were invited to come do readings at to like oh, honor okay. the event yeah yeah, yeah and yeah. his reading was from job oh. and he talked about how he was unfamiliar with the text before then and what an impact job mm. had on him mm. as a story and as a character yeah uh and so that's why i do think i think that text is from job but i can't remember exactly mm. well and i couldn't remember um so when it's we find out ultimately it's a dream but so when matt then takes in the dream takes kevin yeah. to the asylum and everything i was like oh my gosh i didn't remember that matt did that like yeah i was sitting there i was like i thought i thought matt was like you know gonna kind of protect him and gonna kind of shield this so then 
after everything that he's going through, and then he he sees for the first time the sort of spectral Patty, you know, which yeah. looks just like Patty's in the same room with him. But that is when you had mentioned earlier. Do I wonder if the seeds of you know Kevin uh, Kevin's father sure. hearing voices and stuff? I had forgotten that Patty returns in this season as that, mm-hmm. as one mm-hmm. of the voices. I had thought that didn't arise until uh, into season two. Um, so, so yeah, the fact that she, you know, appears in that space, you might have been onto something with maybe they were kind of sort of trying to, to prop up that context so that you know, oh, this is what Kevin Sr. is experiencing, is he's right. seeing or hearing uh, the voices of those who are not with us anymore. And, um, and well, it's, so, funny you yeah. men- it's funny you mentioned the, the dream sequence because I wrote down the want to be a friend like Matt Jamison line, and then it cuts to him dropping him off real abruptly. And I, I literally wrote, or not? <laughs> I, just, I, I was like, eh, I think this is a dream sequence, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. Um, that was funny. Uh, interesting. Talk about seeding things. Uh, through my reading and interview listening, you know, you aren't incorrect that Lindelof likes the closed book version of season building, Uh, but in interviews talking about what comes next in season two, post the text of, uh, Parada's book. Um, and you know, if you're going to watch the show, we would encourage you to continue to do so. It, they change locations in the series. And so they yes. pivot and two interesting notes there. One is the location pivot. The idea for that came as they were breaking season one, the idea of Tom and Christine's journeys and where it would take them. And so that's where oh. they're like, cause, cause the idea was, okay, well maybe they end up at a town where no one departed. And so that oh, gets scrapped in season one. And then explodes out as the basis for more or less two and three. Um, wow. Okay. And the other Got thing it. is he talks about Jason Kadem's work, specifically Friday night lights and parenthood being cause, cause he finished lost and then did a couple of films. And he was talking about how all the shows he missed making lost, he was catching up on. So he's binging Friday night lights and parenthood. Oh, okay. And those were inspirations for the through line of leftovers meaning what if we just focus on these this family and the Mm. people connected to them as opposed to and it and it gave them a pass to not have to deal with okay do we have to answer the question of what the sudden departure is let's instead just zero in on just these people and how they deal with it right 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 oh that's cool yeah that is really cool um so we've talked a lot about the the um you know, the Holy Wayne plot line and our own sort of despairing places with it. But as much as the plot line annoyed me, that whole scene when he's dying and the whole like make a wish, uh, I did find it pretty affecting, you know, and, and I love Lindelof is really good. Part of the reason that I like him so much, and this is going to super frustrate, you know, uh, critics of lost. But part of the reason that I like it so much is, is the way he he's willing to let certain questions linger. Like what was really wished for? Is it truly granted all of that other sort of thing? And so what's uh, hilarious. Yeah. Cause you can see me smiling at you saying that in the interview, they had written in the script he, that, that Kevin says my family and Parada oh. stopped him and said, no, the audience knows what he's wishing for right here. You know what I mean? Or it's more important for the ambiguity. So they, and, and Lindelof says, and he was right. So yes, yes, yes that, yeah, that yeah, was absolutely. on the table. Although you gotta, you gotta hate it for poor Kevin. Holy cow. Yeah. The oh man, gosh. 
wakes up to find himself with his bald, possibly spectral quote unquote friend where they've abducted brutally and brutalized Patty. And then she kills herself in front of him. And then he just goes to have some waffles at a diner or whatever he's <laughs> eating and wanders into the bathroom. And there's a gutted man in the stall, you know, Holy who wants Wayne. to try to hug him and like, what in the world? <laughs> well, and, <laughs> and then poor he's dude. like, He's like, dude, it's crazy out here. I got to get back home. And then, of course, he goes home <laughs> yeah, and, like, yeah, yeah. all of the this things the guilty remnant. Oh, my gosh. It's, yeah. No, I, I, I get it. I get it. Um, and, well, and I, do, that's, I do think I do think it's weird. I'm sorry to cut you off there. I do think it's wild, Reed, that in the morning, this series began as a meditation and response on a global pandemic. Yeah. And the world has ended in or <laughs> that sounded real bleak the world has turned our world our country has turned into a place of rioting and i mm-hmm. thought how weird that this season ends with divisive angry people at each other's throats rioting like, it was so what a weird turn it was so strange to watch it man it was so strange to watch it because i watched this I watched this episode last night as of our recording. Wow. And it it was weird to watch that scene. I mean like weird is not the right word, but I don't, sure. I don't know that I have the right word, but it was it was and I, I mean I got pretty emotional watching it because of everything that else is going on, but that was so strange. And I mean like dude, like it's it's a little strange like we were watching this and they were getting ready for Memorial Day while our Memorial Day was happening and then now this is happening with the thing. It's just it's just really weird. Like a, a lot of it is just but I mean I think that speaks to you know, we felt very compelled to sort of engage with this show and there's no possible way we could have planned all of the different coincidental things that have that have come to light from it, but it has watching the show with everything that's going on has really, you know, it's, it's spoken into my, my heart and mind in some, in some interesting ways in, in relevance that I don't know that much else could, you know, there's, there's certain pieces of media that you could seek out intentionally to try to converse about this particular moment. Um, but I never would have imagined this journey through leftovers, just a couple of episodes at a time uh, would align the way that they have with everything that's happening. And I, you know, there's so much to say about that moment, about the, those sequence of moments at the end, but probably the biggest and most impactful moment to me is when, because we saw in Garvey's at their best, Lori speak because that was in the past, mm-hmm. but she hasn't said a word oh, yeah. at all this entire season post departure. She has not said a word, but the first word that she says, and you can tell like after not having spoken for nine mm-hmm. months, it's a little weird for her to verbalize something, but she screams her daughter's name because her daughter is somewhere Still stuck in, in yeah. a, in a house that's on fire. And she screams her daughter's name to her ex-husband, for him to go in and, and rescue her. And so it says so much for that character, that character who was wrestling with this idea of attachments. And like you said earlier, she realizes that she is attached, you know, and, and so it's so appropriate. Well, I love that tiny thread that, that affirms what you're saying of the lighter. Yes. That oh, she absolutely. initially yeah. discards and then goes back to try to regain, to try to grab. Yeah. Um, so her first word being Jill, her first post departure word being Jill uh, is just so powerful and so affecting, and uh, and then, God, we, you know, we've mentioned it a couple of times. 
Good God, the score in this show, the it's music amazing. in the show. Like, if it if we weren't at risk of getting tossed in copyright prison for it, I'd tell you to throw it all over the episode. Yeah, man, it's amazing. It's it's incredible. If you like, if you have some sort of music subscription service, or if it, I mean, shoot, blind, it's worth buying. buying but yeah, yeah, blind buy the stuff. It's such a it's haunting and lovely and, and it's simultaneously like devastating and uplifting. And it's, it's incredible. The music is incredible. Every time that little refrain yep. comes back in, just everything sort of rises up in my heart and, and spirit um, about it. And uh, yeah, it's just, um, yeah. I So those, those are the notes that I had for season one. Whenever your notes are concluded, we can start to dive into the, uh, you know, the specifics of theme, if you want to, for however long you want to. Uh, a few just quick fire notes that can layer into theme, but might or might not, depending on where we go. The guilty remnant are what happens when ideology supersedes people. Mm. Did I say GOP or guilty remnant? I can't remember. What did you say? Mapleton is on fire. Nobody wants to help them while they are being assaulted mm. it's it's wild um yeah. nora's letter to kevin is really powerful well and, and substantiates very very much the the tricklings of theme that you introduced either in last week or the week before about like how the show is about can we be okay and she yeah. very bluntly directly is like i was trying to be okay and i can't be and um yeah it's well and one of the biggest nora durst thematic character moments is in that letter she says maybe we're all beyond repair mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. um and then it ends with her finding the baby that tommy left on kevin's porch saying look what i found uh which is also a lady gaga song on the um star is born soundtrack that's really great um uh you want to you want to uh, no, I know. Do so, you want to prop up the dummies and <laughs> have a chat? <laughs> so there's, I, I think it should be noted. So the way we're going through this, which we've, we sort of. Uh, Man, you, you didn't know, even look at me. I was totally sitting like a, 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 I was waiting. I was like, come on. But you can't see. I've got my hands just sitting on my desk and just staring off blankly. Like I replaced myself while you were gone, while you weren't looking. Um. <laughs> Wow. Um, so it's weird, the evolution of these like uh, sort of us covering TV shows on the fear of God, because like I look back on how like we did Ash versus Evil Dead and we covered three seasons, but then just talked about the show. And then in dark, we realized, OK, the material's dense enough that we're going to do a season one and a season two. Well, now it's just like, OK, leftovers is far too dense. We've yeah. got to we have got to just dive into season by season. And I do think the storytelling sort of compartmentalizes itself. So I'm gonna do my best in in sort of the themes and the ideas that I'm looking at to look just at season one. Um it will help a little bit to that end that there's much about the other seasons that I can't concretely remember, uh certain moments here and there. But I feel like the biggest thing that I would introduce to the table is I was really Obviously, in the final episode, the guilty remnants choice and their long journey into sort of, you know, we made them remember kind of thing. Um, I don't even have real concrete words to wrap around this, but this notion of remembering and coping and moving on, 
I can remember in his very affecting book, uh, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis had written, and A Grief Observed, for those who haven't read it, is C.S. Lewis's sort of immediate aftermath writing down after his wife died and uh, sort of processing through some of that grief. One of, of several moments in that book that stands out to me is he said he was afraid of forgetting her. Like he was he was afraid of, you know, forgetting precisely what she looked like or forgetting precisely what she was like, because now all he was left with was his memories. And that was the lens because she would continually surprise him and she would continually like. Uh, confront him or, you know, cause something unexpected to happen that uh, that was more fully her. And he was afraid that all he would be left with is just his memory of her. And so trying to wrestle down things that Patty said about, you know, uh, we accept that this has happened and other people are just trying to forget about it. And I'm trying in some ways in real time in this conversation, trying to wrestle down all the different thoughts that this season made me feel and think about, you know, the the process of remembrance and moving on. Because I do think that you look at an ideology like the guilty remnant and you look at like, I'm going to just blurt the thoughts out as I think. Yeah. In a way, to a degree, they're on to something. The thing that they're on to is to some degree, you can't pretend this just didn't happen. Like, you, you cannot just ignore it. At the same time, I feel like they very much want to, or maybe not want to, but they very much feel their purpose and mission is to stay stuck in it. They're living reminders. They, they want to not move on from it. Uh, hence, they do this hideous, heinous thing to where they throw the absence of these people's loved ones in their faces. And so I feel like there is some degree of maturity that has to be struck between. I was having a conversation and, and, and you've said it a couple, we've said it a couple of times in this, in this episode already that this whole series and examining the leftovers and everything, what it, it began at least initially as a way to observe and perhaps contextualize navigating this global pandemic. And I was having a conversation with uh, a church peer just earlier this week. And I said, my assessment of so many things is there are people at the moment who are just absolutely desperate at whatever cost to get back to normal and to get back to, you know, we need to just bring everything back in. We need to just you know, sort of muscle through this, get things back into normality, get things back into, or normalcy, get things back into uh, a, a sense of uh, rhythm and place and, and familiarity, if you will. And I feel like I've really, in the context of thinking about this show, I've been wrestling a lot with those people who would drive and push us to move on from this. I feel like there's not going to be, and this is what I shared with my my peer friend, I feel like those people who just want to pretend this didn't happen are not going to be able to properly assess that it happened to them and how it happened and and what it affected in them. At the same time, I don't feel like we have to stay stuck in this. I don't feel like we have to stay, you know, just perpetually circling the drain of 
well, this thing has devastated us. And so now we're just always because I think of it in the context of what's happening right now with, um, you know, with unfortunately all of the the protests and uh, the uh, the the version of protests that stays peaceful versus the version of protests that for whatever reasons turn to violence uh, against people, against property, against whatever else. Um, and there's this sense of not cynicism. What's the word that I'm looking for? Um, just inevitability that this is always going to be this way or that we'll never kind of break through and move on from it. And so in my head, are swirling around all of these different complex things. And maybe it feeds into exactly what you had at least briefly mentioned about, can we be okay? Can we be whole? We talked about it to a degree last week, but um, I feel like there is this very difficult tension between the need to remember, but also the need to move on and the need to carry the memory with you, but not let the memory sort of keep you stuck in some sort of past sensibility. Um, and so I said up front that I don't have a, a nice bumper sticker to say, but the, these are the things that are cycling through my mind that I'm trying to wrangle down some kind of context for. Leftovers, everybody. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I, I wonder if uh, the question, can we be okay, is, is just sort of this clanging gong that, that kind of rings through my spirit sometimes. And, and what's interesting is I, uh, leftovers illustrates means of coping. It illustrates, I don't know if you picked up on this. I wrote this down the scene and the Garvey's at their best when, uh, Kevin's in bed, he wakes up in bed, uh, alert or alarmed, uh, Lori's in there getting ready to leave for the day. He gets up and he goes on a run. Do you know what his line is that that signals this? Mm, he doesn't say. Me. He doesn't say I'm going to go on a run, which is kind of a standard thing. He says I'm going to run. Mm. Then, so you got you've got Kevin who, and I'm I will get back to plug in where you're at. You've got Kevin who deals with self loathing. That then cheats on his wife and the woman departs and that self-loathing metastasizes into self-hatred hmm. that channels itself in bouts of rage and anger. I mean, gosh, is it the first season that the promotional art is Justin Thoreau's musculature against the body bank crap, breaking a wall by banging on it? Yes. Uh, yes. So you've got that and how we deal or don't. And you've got Nora, and these two characters become kind of the central, the totally effed up coach and Mrs. Coach of leftovers because what is her last line of the season? Look what I found. This woman who will not do the interior work. I'm not, I'm not saying she hasn't been through the ringer. She absolutely has, yeah, but, sure. but in the courthouse, uh, do you want to change your name? No, I'd like to keep Nora Durst. Yeah. Identify her. Uh, she she finds a brief moment of solace after the holy Wayne hug mm. that is shattered mm. by the image of the mannequin family. 
that ends with a new external thing. Mm. The baby. Mm. Look what I found. I found this thing. I didn't do the work. And, you know, planting these posts here and hopefully together we can bring a cohesive picture. It's funny. You're, you're referencing the Lewis text. What is the title of that book? Oh, a grief observed. Yeah. A grief observed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we can be made whole in the most real union with God phrase of that meaning of that phrase in our corporeal forms. I don't know. I do think, uh, tr- uh my wife, um, a couple months ago, we had this really interesting conversation and she had listened to a podcast. She was reading a lot of books. I, I think I've been referenced this. She was reading a lot of books about death and dying, uh, from like mm. doctors and sort of this type of stuff. And it was really interesting. And, and, she had stumbled on this podcast interview with an author named Jason green, who wrote a book called once we saw stars. And this book is a memoir of his, I should have looked this up to know for certain, but I'm pretty sure it was like a three-year-old daughter. And they were sitting on a park bench one day in a high rise metropolitan area and read a piece of debris of construction debris small fell from the top of this building and killed his child while he was sitting with her (laughs) and his book is recounting the story of coming to newness and wholeness over time of course of this thing of how can can this person be made whole can can this guy as you just hear this story can that person at some point in their future life walk in in a wholeness yeah and that story has has stayed with me and and watching leftover season one and watching these people and watching us as a country and you mentioned a minute ago are we going do we have to stay stuck is there something correct about the gr I will say for myself, not that you would uh, disagree with this, I think, but just as you said that, what it made me think is the problem with the GR isn't their call to remember. The problem with the GR is they've pathologized death. They Mm. say COVID happened. That's it. That's it. Shut it down. We are dead. And Mm. we're going to make you recognize that, that you are nothing. Right. We, by, by living reminders, all that means is we're just breathing. We don't occupy, uh, uh, you know, spiritual presence and space. We occupy physical space just enough so that we're going to drag your sorry, uh, uh, forgetful asses down with us. Right. Like Mm -hmm. that is Mm -hmm. the message Mm -hmm. of the GR. And so if you translate that into a COVID moment, it, it would be people pathologizing that, like, like making religion of staying stuck to use the language you used a minute ago. Right. Sure. Right. Right. And, and it's so wild Reed. Like I had in my prep for talking about theme, I had made a note about Brian Stevenson and then all this stuff starts happening. And, uh, my therapist once told me that anger is just, grief we haven't dealt with. Mm. And 
that's why I called to note a grief observed. What does it take to be whole? What does it take for America? Because it's, it's, we have to observe it's, it's Brian Stevenson all the time references South Africa's truth and reconciliation process. Mm. And he says, this is a thing this country has never done. Yeah. And it is killing us. Um, there's so many facets to that that are worth consideration outside of this conversation. But I just think there has to be some form of affirmative answer to that question. Otherwise, we should adopt all white and start smoking. Right. Like mm. if we can't honestly say there's a means by which we might be whole individually, uh, locally, uh, nationally. And I don't know. I think, I think so much about what's happening right now. And, um, it, it is not in my interest to wallow in this moment long, but thinking about the people who want to identify just the cops who had participation in George Floyd's death as responsible or pivot away from this thing to identify symptoms of the problem. These are just symptoms. What about the looting? That's a symptom, man. This is a symptom, not the problem itself. And as long as we are content and we don't know we're content, we just don't know. Otherwise we don't know what whole feels like. We don't know what whole looks like. Because for myself, one, we have no, we have so few moral leaders in our country, sometimes in our churches. And so, and that's, that sounds, uh, terribly critical. All I mean to say is it makes sense why we don't understand because we can't reach consensus on transgression, right? We can't. Which means if you can't reach consensus on transgression, you're going to be uh, reluctant to seek repentance, mm. right? Uh, and if you have no one embodying any of that, that you're willing to sort of look to, it just it just falls apart. It is it is the cul-de-sac of the guilty remnant, and everyone's throwing their their facsimile loved ones on the pyre, mm. right? Yeah, and yeah. And it's so fascinating because I look, I I was just blown back by Kevin Sr.'s comment. This character who himself has his issues, but my God, that man can cut like a knife. Oh, yeah. In the moment. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think about that. Like we talked about this on, um, uh, I think on at some point during, remnant about nostalgia and by and by yes and kevin senior says when kevin jr says why isn't it enough and the father says it is enough mm-hmm. stop looking otherwise like yeah. Yeah. our inability to or, or our our craving for the nostalgia that that pacifies our fear of the future that looms keeps us from recognizing. Uh, I think of the end of the last Jedi remarkable had this comes up and Leia comforting Ray saying we have all we need right here. 
Yeah. Yeah. All I'm trying to say in a very long winded way is it makes sense that when you deny people their grief, they will respond possibly violently. Right? Like, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like there's multiple layers of things going on right there. I don't mean to confuse the issue, but. Um, no, no, I understand. Because I understand. you look at, I'm sorry, one last thing in the Stevenson note, he points to South Africa, Germany, Rwanda, these, it, it's the local and the global locally. What does it mean to be well? What does it mean to walk whole? What does it mean to be present physically, spiritually, materially, as that keeps coming up then globally nationally what does that look like we kind of know because <laughs> we do have examples but yeah. and and again I, I, i'm saying this less as condemning more as observing but our exceptionalism are the lies we believe about ourselves. that's what i was trying to get around to is truth telling that phrase is what i wanted to start with and forgot truth telling we make up we mythologize ourselves individually nationally and we we stop telling the truth mm. about who we are you know and that's a mix of things but because of that we stop telling the truth then about what we do to other people and that just goes and 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 goes hey buddy leftovers hi but i think I had I had a really interesting conversation with my wife not that long ago wherein we began to observe in inside the conversation the the conversation we were having was about honesty and uh and about the notion of sometimes I can hear I can hear this phrase that people will say and and they'll and you use the word truth. That's what's sparking some of this. I can hear people use the phrase like, just be honest or just tell the truth. And one of the reasons I always have a difficulty hearing that is a lot of times I will hear an encouragement to that end and or, or a, a frustration exclamation, say like, hey, you know, just be honest or permission to speak freely or whatever. But in whatever context, sometimes I'm sitting there going, I, I, I don't know what the truth is. I, I don't know how I feel. And one of the things I appreciate about this finale in Leftovers is that scene in the diner with Matt mm -hmm. where he says, what did Patty, Matt says to Kevin, what did Patty say right, right before she Mm -hmm. She killed herself. Mm -hmm. And he's, he says she, she told him, you do understand or you do know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and Matt, Matt, very matter of factly. Scene. Oh, it's a wonderful scene. Matt, very matter of factly said like, okay, well, what, what do you know? Or what did she mean? And he's like, oh, I don't know. And, and this is what I love about that scene is Kevin's like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what she was referring to. But I love Matt's concise observation where he's like, if she was willing to kill herself to get a message through, I guarantee you she wanted to make sure yeah, you, you had yeah. it before she did it. 
And it's revelatory to Kevin in that moment. Kevin's not been sitting on a pile of things he's anxious to say. He's been sitting on things he does not understand how to express. Hmm. He's not been sitting on things waiting for the outlet through which to speak. Sure. He's not understood. To what you've talked about with mentioned with Nora, she hasn't done the interior work. And I think part of the the mistake that we make is in assuming we always have all of the information about each other and ourselves. Mm-hmm. Instead of recognizing that there are things through which you have to go before you can receive the revelation of what it is. I honest to God think that awful as her character is or can be, Patty saw in Kevin that he was more self-aware than he would let himself admit. And so here's Kevin stuck in this place where he all of these pieces are there but he doesn't know how to verbalize it sure doesn't know how to like come to terms with it because he can't verbalize it right and so so much of what i see going on we don't know nathan we don't know like well right but no but no 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 no, no, hold on please people act like they have the answer everybody needs to listen to So they will spit out all manner of things that people need to say, do, think, feel. This is the fix. This is the problem. This is that. And you have a whole slew of people that are experiencing things related to literal decades and decades and decades of systemic oppression and Mm -hmm. systemic prejudice. And you have people sitting there feeling things relative to economic disparity and feeling things relative to this virus has turned the world upside down and feeling all of these things and not knowing what to say and what to think and how to feel. And so I think part of what this, for me, this idea of like, remembering and moving on is I do see a lot of people acting the way this guilty remnant kind of does where they're just like shoving it in your face and saying like, no, this is, this is it. This is, this is what it's supposed to be, but they're wrong too. They're not creating a path through which we feel safe enough to do the work and to come to the revelation. Sure. And I feel like we sit sometimes in our arrogance and in our, uh, our, our anger and think that we know the 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 what everybody else needs to do, and we know the the problems and the ways that everybody else needs to act and behave, and and we are we're not humble at all. We're right. not yes. we're not one inch humble about any of these problems, and we're not one inch humble about any of the complexity, the 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 human complexity that is being put through the ringer right now. Uh, whether, you know, pick an issue. Like, all of the different things culminating and swirling right now into a maelstrom. And I'm, and, and I'm sorry that I, like, cut you off, but I was like, no, I, I have, you're to, fine. I have well, to get, have to get well, some and I of just, this out. I, I want it clear, too. One, I'm not trying to oversimplify truth-telling. And two, when I say, I think there's angles on describing, telling the truth there. Like, I mean, you and I had a mutual college peer who was like, oh, I'm a... I'm a prophet. I just tell the truth. He's like, no, that's not at all what you're talking. (laughs) 
this is not the thing. That's not it. Um, because I think, you know, to use the, the template of South African truth and reconciliation, at least on a corporate scale, it's telling the truth about what has been done. And in our case, in the United States case, it's, it is this systemic oppression. We, we have to figure out how to corporately own that true, own the truth of that transgression so that reconciliation, i.e., okay, in light of this truth, what does it look like to make it right between those who have been transgressed against? Now, so there's that puzzle piece. I would right. say on a more immediate local level, individual level, when I think of truth telling, part of and and let's use kevin for a moment part of it is that emotional component that emotional intelligence which perhaps kevin clearly struggles with of saying of being able to say i am angry mm-hmm. to the depths of myself mm-hmm. and i need help that's truth telling by the same token by what you were saying you can also be a jackass telling the truth i'm simply saying truth telling involves Initially, it's that self-awareness of last week and the bubble analogy, right? It's the self-awareness that a lot of us have a hard time with of saying, I'm really angry or I'm really sad or I'm really scared or I'm really confused. I'm in a lot of pain. It's the capacity to name those things. Um, The film Inside Out is such a beautiful template for being able to do that. But once you can do that, that truth-telling permits you to begin to reconcile yourself. It's ourselves knowing ourselves. It's, mm-hmm. Reed, we are good at this. <laughs> no, um, I don't mean it, telling the truth. I mean it. All of these things coalescing Wrapping in this it conversation. All it's, yeah. a, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's ourselves knowing ourselves. It's having the capacity. Because I think once you can go through that rigorous process, of 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 naming those things inside yourself you can then but the truth becomes okay in light of those things i am responsible for me i am responsible now for how those things interact and play out that's that's a truth i'm telling about myself because the non-dualistic the mature version of this expression is now i am responsible for you Mm, in mm-hmm. caretaking your well-being, your um, exercising compassion, showing empathy. Like that's a new level of truth-telling, right? To to own yeah, the right. willingness and the, uh, I think, uh, Christ image embodying of taking responsibility for, for your feelings now. Like, like yes. I, not as in I'm responsible for how you feel. That's not what I'm saying. But as in how what I do impairs impacts injures harms you others i have Mm -hmm. to be responsible for that thus i am my brother's keeper it all comes back to this idea what we've decided is no one is our brother Mm. yeah even yeah Mm -hmm. ourselves Mm -hmm. right like there are so many kevins walking around in the world self-loathing self-hating angry yet uh, having to wear this mask that Kevin does of peacemaking, right? Like Kevin doesn't Kevin. He good Lord. He's a 20th. He's a 21st century American cop. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and all I was trying to say earlier too, to pivot back to uh, um, moral 
guideposts that, that we talked about on, on writing moral imagination, like what we we've, we don't trust each other. We don't trust ourselves. I don't love the word morality, but you know what I mean when I say moral example, like, like we don't have someone we look to. And that's why for me personally, when six years ago, my life was sort of thrown in the toilet by a person uh, in leadership of faith. It's like, okay, well, (laughs) moral leadership now starts inside of me and Mm -hmm. I got to figure out what it means to bear a Christ image responsibly and once and if, and again, that's an ongoing never ending sort of thing, but hero worship is a problem. I'm getting all over the place. I don't mean to, I'm sorry. No, no. I I mean, and I, I don't want to stifle the, the, space that you need to be able to flesh some of those ideas out but i think no. the the other thing is that just it's it's a process right it's this sure. is a process and so i'm over in this moment i am over anybody who wants to try to snake oil pedal me a cheap answer to any of this sure just do x just do that one of the most Forgive me, listeners. <laughs> One of the most frustrating comments that I hear right now is when I hear brothers and sisters my faith in my faith say something along the lines of, well, people just need the gospel or yeah, people just yeah. need this. It's, it's, but I want to say why. Yeah. Is because you it, it, it expresses an idea the way I hear it. So let me talk about how I hear it and not presume too much about sure. why they say it. How I that hear it. That is very mature of you, Reed. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. How I hear it is I hear it saying, you know what? If you just let go and let God, this all be fine. As if there was some version of quick, easy answer that's going to just write all of this off and make all of this done. And I feel like there are some things which are too, you get pregnant and that child develops for nine months and there are so many complexities and miraculous uncertainties that happen along that way, but it is, it is a process. It happens over time and it is formed and shaped as things progress and i feel like there are so many traumas in our world and so many problems that people want to find the insert formula here receive equation there like they want to and 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 this was the other thing that this season sort of like wrestled in in and then like brought up in me is man's search for understanding of the why why this thing happened to who it happened to and why it didn't happen to certain other people. And so many characters in the show are wrestling with that kind of thing. But the thing that I walk away with is just trying to recognize in myself, hey, uh, I'm still coming to recognize in myself. It's not just about admitting things that are in my heart. It's not just about admitting things that are honest and true in my expression, it's about coming to understand those things 
and coming to recognize that's the word. That's how I feel. Um, instead of saying like, oh, I, uh, instead of saying I'm afraid, maybe saying I'm overwhelmed or I'm confused or like I, like I have to find the right word that when the right word comes in, I can feel instantly, oh, that's, that's what I'm feeling. That's what it is. But sometimes that takes a process and it takes a process that requires space and freedom mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. requires leniency and grace and re- and requires challenge and work and and sometimes to quote the other Lindelof series that we love sometimes you just got to sit and stare out at the ocean for a little while like sometimes it requires you to just be silent and sometimes it requires you to to work and push effort forth but i feel like in everything that we're experiencing right now i'm learning a lot about getting to know myself and getting to know uh my my feelings and and thought processes and senses of things that i'm coming to 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 recognize in ways i didn't recognize before and i'm sitting in the moment pretty okay with the fact that it is a process and not a you know a a riddle or puzzle i'm trying to solve it's a right. process i'm trying to walk through i told someone else about the you know the current trauma and try you know the pandemic and trying to get through things and trying to get past the the systemic oppression and make sense of you know the 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 protests and and and, and all of the the looting and the rioting and and, and everything that's going on and and <laughs> uh, to to i'm thinking of kevin garvey in this moment like the day after you break your legs is not the day to take up jogging like it's not like you have you you have to go through a process of healing and restoration and you have to you have to sit still for a little while and you have to recognize like hey some things are broken and we need to give the time and the care and attention that it needs before they can even get like the what's the first thing that happens if you're if if your bone gets broken first of all it has to be set and fixed in place and be still and it has to just it has to just pause right we you know we're calling this the great pause and like it, it has to just be set and be still and you can't re-traumatize it or you'll or you'll be counterproductive to the healing process and you can't you know put force against it again or it won't heal the right way or won't heal at all and I feel like there's so many things that we experience a trauma of sorts, we experience a pain of sorts, and we just want to move on and walk it off. And I feel like we need to be cognizant in these conversations, whether we're talking about systemic oppression, whether we're talking about economic systems coming out of the virus, whether we're talking about how all of this has personally affected you and how all of this may have or what maybe things that didn't have anything to do with any of this has affected you. And I feel like we need to just give ourselves the freedom and the space to recognize that this is a, this is a process and it takes time and it will not be solved by anybody from the church house to the white house or anywhere in between. It is not going to be solved by anybody saying, just do this, just X, Y, Z. That's, that's not going to get us there. It's a it's very personal, it's very specific, 
It's very complex, and it requires time, and it requires space. And and the one big thing that I would introduce in the mix is it requires us to do the work to be humble enough to recognize that we have to change. Yes. And recognize, be humble enough to recognize that we don't have the answers, and we we can only probably really know what's going on inside ourselves. But even that, we have to look and we have to examine, and we have to be self-aware, and we have to admit our mistakes, and we have to be pliable and willing to move forward as a new and a different person. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, yes, that's, that's that's hard work. The the my last my last statement on this it's something that I had, I don't believe you. <laughs> it's probably not true. Um, <laughs> See honesty. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I shared something to social media earlier today. And it was this. I've been thinking a lot lately about the person uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament, uh, Saul of Tarsus. And I've been thinking a lot about how when he, he held the coats of people who stoned Stephen the martyr, and he then started like this active campaign to try to persecute and imprison and oppress Christians. And he did all of this with a staunch conviction that he was righteous and a stalwart dedication that he was doing what was, that he was doing God's good work, that he was doing what was supposed to be expected of him. And it was not until he was stopped in his tracks on the road to Damascus and experiences this vision where Jesus is like, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me? And then in his blindness, he's suddenly finally able to see all of the ways in which he was propping up oppression and persecution against Christ himself. And I feel like there are so many of us who in our stubbornness and in our pride are pressing forward in things that are making, that are actively hurting other people and that are actively causing other people to suffer. And in our stubborn insistence that we're doing the righteous or right or good thing, we may be further pressing down, oppressing and persecuting people who are God's fearfully and wonderfully made children. And until we are willing humbly enough to just be stopped in our tracks and be sort of arrested and examine the ways in which we need to turn around and become, that's what prompted me to bring it up is we've got to become a different person. Because once that revelation hit him, he no longer was Saul of Tarsus. Now he was Paul. Well, and he's like, call me. Yeah. And it's funny because I had the thought recently of like this craving for normal when what we need is new. Like it's, which is real pithy and I don't mean it to be, uh, you know, kind of bumper stickery, but like normal didn't work anyway. You know, um, Mm. I really loved, Mm. uh, if, if you needed some information, I really loved your posts on that. That was really powerful. Mm, I'm not specifying you. I'm telling you the truth. No. Will you tell me that you're not mad at me for invoking truth telling as an idea that, that what you're what you're Um, decrying and, and, and absolutely i'm not mad oh, okay. at, i'm not mad at okay. all no <laughs> you can be i'm mad. not mad at all no no i'm actually no i'm actually not i it's, it was it was prescient it was prescient because i've been i've been coming to the revelation just recently that in order for me to tell the truth sometimes i have to shake hands with the truth and get to know the truth and sometimes i have to in myself sometimes i don't know fully who i am and i need to 
recognize and understand the hard work of, of coming to that awareness. And so, uh, you know, I feel like, no, I feel like it was, you know, it, it incited a particular frustration that I don't have with you, but that I have with the notion of people who peddle cheap and easy truths sure. as if, as if truth has ever been cheap or easy to quote John Locke, you know, like, like it has never been easy. And, but, but it's good, you know, if I could reach and, through this computer oh, screen, just, you know, <laughs> oh man easy so um so i mean unless you had and when if you do by all means tell the truth um but i you know I, I i feel like this might be a good place to to sort of leave it there unless there was something you really feel left unsaid that needs to be said uh otherwise we can pivot to the fog meter i yield to your preference there sir read it is like crazy town. What in the world is happening on this planet? Oh, oh, Everything. Like, I know. like All it is it. a process. Yeah. And I, I think you're a hundred percent, you're a thousand percent correct there. And it was funny because in the last hour, it's like, are we talking about a global pandemic or racial problems <laughs> in America that have led to conflagration and Oh, oh, all of it? It's all, oh, right. We all were just concerned a week ago about whether to wear a mask or not. And now we're worried if we're going to die in our homes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh From, oh, whatever. Oh, but yeah. I'm glad to be here. Um, and in the, um, in the words of Matt Jameson, read, let's be in it. Um, then let's be in it. Uh, are we fog meter in this? Let's do it. Let's 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 go ahead and get let's go ahead and give it a fog meter. Um, so the fog meter is our very specific metric of fear and God, where we rate the material we cover on its scares and its substance. The leftovers, very specifically, season one. Um, fear. It's it's just weird because it has a lot of existential things to offer, but uh, and some of those things are upsetting and and perhaps a bit disturbing or frightening to to discuss, but obviously not a uh, traditionally themed horror related show. Uh, I'm going to give this a three on Whoa. the fear factor. So um, what do you got for me? I'm going to double down and just double. I'm going to go six. Um, <laughs> I think, I think the existential okay. component um, uh, is harrowing in a large degree. Um, mm. I mean, yeah, there's, although the, the, the grisly passing of, Patty Levin is pretty that is, awful. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's rough. Um, what about the God read? Not the God read, but the God comma read. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, get out of here! I'm just talking about season one. I'm just talking about season one. Um, uh, I'm gonna give this a a six. Wow! On really on the God meter. You're yes. just surprising yes. me. Yeah, I feel like you're. Well, here's so here's the thing. I I say I'm just talking about season one, and then at the same time, I'm recognizing that there are places this show goes that I feel like if I give them comparable mm. scores mm. are not quite mm. comparable. So I have to hedge a little bit because I know that once we start getting into two and three, if I give them the same score as season one, I'm going to feel like I need to go back and retroact my score. So I'm just... I'm sort of, you know, playing playing a bit, you know, of uh of, of median 
uh, sure. you know, operation here. Um, and so, so that's why I'm giving it uh, a six at the moment, only because I know where the show's going. So, well, yeah. then knowing that we give half scores, half number scores, I'm going to go for season one with a nine, knowing I've got room okay. to run between oh. here and the end. <laughs> I mean, I say that I, I, I'm being That's jokey, fair. but um, especially the first time I saw this, the place I was in, uh, it, it, it was, however, painful, uh, astonishingly cathartic and therapeutic of sure, an experience to watch sure. um even for the lesser pieces of the puzzle of season one the the total picture just is a real gripping human humans yes. wrestling with trauma story and I, I find it really compelling and fascinating yeah absolutely and that means that we give season one of hbo's the leftovers a six out of ten on the fog meter um, and yeah, I, I mean, I feel like if I were rating season one, I might give it an overall sort of like that place. But let me tell you listeners where you, where you are headed. If you're on for this ride, like just, just buckle up. Cause we've got some really galvanizing things coming up in seasons two and three of the leftovers. But the most important question before we get into all of that is, would you recommend season one of the leftovers to people? Um, it is, it is not for the faint of heart whatsoever. Uh, if you are a bit eyes wide open and enjoy, um, you know, emotionally wrenching, you know, uh, serialized drama. Uh, yes. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I am, I am unquestionably happy to be going back through it. Uh, so, so, it's a qualified yeah. but hearty yes i recommend it absolutely uh and and with me as well i think we've even said as much uh as sort of in passing because i recommend the show so wholeheartedly absolutely i recommend season one though i usually when pushing people to watch the show i tell them not to judge sure. the show yeah, on their yeah, feelings yeah. about season one um because while i think there's some tremendously great stuff in season one i feel like Getting to season two and three are so worth whatever misgivings you might have about what happens in season one. Uh, so if you've been on this journey with us and you're like, oh, I don't know, please, please, please press forward because um, I, feel I mean, like two don't and take it from us. Like incredible. pretty much most uh, lists of the decade has it in the top five, if not the top three. Yes. Of the series, yeah. the series. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, the series as a whole. No, absolutely. Um, so that puts this particular phase, uh, hashtag in the morning, phase one, hashtag remnant, uh, that puts it in the books. Um, Nathan, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, as always. Absolutely. Uh, first for suggesting that we go through the leftovers. Thank you for that as well. Um, and uh, as we say on every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And uh, in that spirit, uh, to each and all, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you look like, uh, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Amen. Uh, we'll see you next week, everybody. See you guys. Bye.
The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest news and episodes or for merchandise and to contact us directly. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God, on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork, to Lee Wright, who helped me read Lackey write our theme music, and to Tyler Smith at morethanonelesson.com for making our show possible. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, and if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.